0: This week's Major Spoilers podcast is brought to you by the following fine and faithful spoilerites. Stephen Gilbert, Stephanie Estes, Scott Mada, Russell Radcliffe, James Thatcher, Silas Garrett, Henry Lamont, Jacob Crimin, Derek Viger, 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 Craig Borden, Matthew Floyd, Matthew Eschert, Ren Bibucha, Daniel Cotter, Mark Burbach, Hunter Graham, Jason Foreman. Darius Lau, Guillaume Berube, Trey Taylor, Andrew Davis, Melody Nasalrod, Brian Fanouf, MyTronks.com, Ross Manden, Terry Keller, Richard Newton, Christina Craigshead, Michael Feiweger, and Edwin Adelsberger. Want to join the ranks of the fine and faithful Spoilerites all there in the halls of Spoilerosity? Join up for the full Majors of Spoiler experience, and a future major Spoilers production could go out somewhat stuttery, but still fine to you. Issue! Colonel Rodrigo Guile, one of the greatest martial artists in the world, travels the global tournament circuit, using it to conceal his mission as leader of an elite group of international crime fighters, codename Street Fighter. The heroic man-beast, Sacco! The hard-fighting kicking machine, King Cobra! The master of the crane kick! Honorable Stevenson, a team of the most amazing warriors ever seen joining forces to combat, combat the criminal empire of Shadowloo and its superhuman leader, inexplicably played by Raúl Julia. We have our code of honor, discipline, justice, commitment, and together we will triumph against the forces of evil. It's Major Spoilers Street Fighter! And it's on the air.
1: Welcome to issue 570 of the Major Spoilers <laughs> podcast. We will uh, uh, we will not be doing any street nor fighting this week.
2: Oh, but I I No, (laughs) Rodrigo
0: (laughs) wanted to have big, tall, spiky hair.
1: We do, however, have an interview later in the show. I sit down with Dr. Brad will and we talk about uh, Lovecraft and Cthulhu and racism and all sorts of good things. That's coming up later in the hour. But first, let us talk some news. And a couple of just a couple of stories really quick that uh, struck struck my eye. Ouch. Uh, this past week, uh, we know that DC Comics is getting ready to launch three weekly series. We know that there's an Earth 2 uh, series weekly coming up. We, uh, we know that the Batman Eternal is currently going on. And then there's one more. and I forget what the name of that one is uh, off the top of my head. But a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, how long can DC keep this up? Well, we have our answer because Dan uh, DiDio went to Facebook last week and said, hey, basically all of these are scheduled to end in March of 2015.
0: So about isn't year. it futures end perhaps? Yeah. The,
1: no, I don't know if it's futures end Batman eternal started in May is set to run in March, uh, where it will take a brief hiatus, uh, futures end. that's right. Matthew, uh, starts in May and ends the last week of March, 2015 and worlds end starts in October and ends the same week as the others. Next March. Hope that clears things up. Says Dan DeDio. Dio. Now here's the thing that, uh, I find very interesting. They're already telling us when the um, when these series are ending, and they're actually fairly big event stuff where we jump five years into the future and all that stuff uh, going on. And the, uh, by the way, if you're listening, the new DC solicits for July are out. That includes a lot of the Futures End and World's End stuff in there that you can go and check out. But I'm wondering if they're not already gearing up for the next big event if they aren't already uh, haven't already done so. And I would expect that. By San Diego Comic-Con, they're going to tell us what that new weekly series is that starts in March or starts in April. Mm. Does that sound mm. too far out of the uh, realm of crazy?
0: Not really, although I am concerned. About? Well, when DC relaunched in 2011, it was kind of a big, you know, world right. game changing mm-hmm. thing. mm mm-hmm. And I feel like the jump to five years in the future feels like an attempt to recapture that, you know, yes, that lightning yeah. in the
1: bottle. I would, I would agree completely
0: with you. And I'm particularly worried that in trying right. to capture that lightning in the same bottle that all we're going to get is, you know, more retreads. I feel like. Oh, you're talking about the you, ultimate it, ultimate DC universe? Well, yeah, I'm talking about. You know, because future's World's End
1: sounds interesting. Well, World's End sounds like uh, <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, we see the the solicit info, and it's like uh, Batman holding uh, dead, uh, looks like uh, Huntress or something in his arms. And so that kind of feels very uh, crisis-y.
0: Yeah, and I'm worried, I guess I should say. I'm concerned about where this could go.
1: Well, what are you concerned about? What are you concerned that it's going to go turn into?
0: I'm concerned that it's going to turn into another boot launch vamp. (laughs) <laughs> and that you know, three you know, three years from now or two years from now, because the law of diminishing returns, we're going to get another boot launch vampry. You know, it, it. I I felt like the new fifty two, while flawed, while troublesome, yeah, was was just wild and bold enough yeah. and brave enough to be something that could work and could make long term changes. And I feel like this feels more like. Our return to same old, same old with the new 52 template now as part of our cycle of endless, you know, crisis on infinite banana pans.
1: What do you think there, Zach? Do you care at all about this?
2: Uh, Not uh, particularly. Um, not that Uh, uh the, the stories don't sound interesting, or I might not scan through a couple issues, but the idea of having to pick up an issue every week figure out a whole story of a series is seems daunting and not anything I want to especially, take on. <laughs> with,
1: especially with what we don't know the cover price I guess it's there in the solicits um, you know i would made a prediction not too long ago that I believe that people are gonna ditch the 299 and we're gonna see a 499 price tag by the end of the year um, and if you have to do that for a weekly whoosh Rodrigo what do you think about this uh, these weekly series all ending around the same time
3: uh, well, they're probably they probably are setting up for something at the end of it. Um Usually they don't make a big deal out of when a series ends. Mm-hmm. So they're probably building up to something as far as my interest in it. I mean, it's it's fairly low. Uh, you know, personally, I've only picked up like a handful of the new 52 stuff just because I'm not terribly interested in in DCE's, mm-hmm. uh stable mm-hmm. as it is. So I was reading some Animal Man and some Wonder Woman and that's about it. Let me uh, let me throw this wild thought out. What
1: if, Matthew, Uh what if your deepest fears are coming coming true? What if at the end of World's End. They reboot the universe again to the new new 52. And they give us a whole new universe feels the same way. They may not tell the same stories. There may be some stuff that carries over. Some stuff may not. And then in another three years, they do it again. And then finally, they do what I've been telling them to do for years, just create a whole multiverse and tell your Dick Grayson agent of shield story with a little Earth 27 <laughs> sticker on there so that people know that this is not in the prime DCU universe. They've been dancing around this whole multiverse thing for several years now, ever since 52, when they brought it back and never used it correctly with the failed uh, first wave. And then uh, they've brought in Earth 2 and Earth 3 already in uh, in uh, the new Fifty Two, especially with the new Futures End or what is this future? What is this final? What's this series that just ended where they kill off Dick or unmask him, and he has to go undercover forever, evil. Forever, forever evil, with the Earth. Last three, forever, kind of evil. Yes, last forever, evil. Fifty two times. Um, I think they're just going to get to the point where they're like, you know what? We're going to take the characters that you love from the new Fifty Two, and we're going to tell stories about that, and that's going to be Batman, whatever. Then we're going to go tell some stories that feature. You know, Silver Age Superman. Then we're going to go tell the Legion stories and we're going to get down on our hands and knees and back a, a buttload of of money up to Mark Wade's uh, house mm-hmm. and to uh, get Abnett and Lanning back together. And we're going to do Legion of superheroes the right way. And that's going to be in some other universe. I think they're gearing up for that. I think they realize that you can only go so far before you have to reboot. But instead of doing what Marvel does every year with a whole new slew of number ones, mm-hmm. I think they're just finally going to give up and say, hey, what? Hey, guess what? There's a whole new multiverse and we're going to label them accordingly. So if you just want to read Teen Titans in uh, or uh, the Tales of Shazam in Earth what was it 10? W- where was Shazam from? Earth S. Oh, Earth S. Um Earth S for Shazam. <laughs> Yes. Uh then you can do that. And here's Earth a whole Smiley bunch of Face. Earth Smiley Face for <laughs> all things happy for, That's where the Scooby Doo universe
0: resides. Earth Emoticon. Yeah.
3: Yeah. By well, the way, if you if you want to know what uh the regular Earth on uh, uh, of the DC universe is called. It's actually called Earth Batman symbol. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I would say, Stephen, that that you had me up until the point where you made the argument you've been making ever since fifty two, <laughs> which mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. DC needs to. Well, go I don't back know if they to
1: need to. That's what I would. I would prefer. You want them to. Yeah.
0: And, and that's the thing, and that's perfectly legit for me. I would say that in the Silver Age of comics, where uh, admittedly things were different, expectations were different, audiences were different, they successfully pulled off the multiple Earth mm-hmm. gimmick, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, and they did it in ways that I think people are still trying to replicate. Well, but I think, I think, Marvel, I think, did did I think Marvel did it. Not. I think Marvel did it. not.
1: I think Marvel did it with the Ultimate Universe. That thing went on for, what, 15 years now? Mm-hmm. And I know you don't like like that universe, but, I mean, it is a whole other parallel universe where stories have told, and we've seen them do, like, 1602. We've seen them do what
0: ifs. But the the ultimate universe is basically Ultimate Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Right. The massive success of that Ultimate Spider-Man launch boot vamp (laughs) – allowed them to create an ultimate universe around it Mm -hmm. and basically the ultimate universe is kind of a playpen that they know that you can have the baby throw up in and you can just hose it off later which is why magneto you know destroyed the universe and wolverine died and professor x was murdered and the wasp got her head bitten off because it's not the prime continuity and i think that dc And Marvel and, you know, to some degree, Dark Horse with their stories that are tied together Mm and image with their central image universe. Mm -hmm. All are married to the Stan Lee shared universe. All the stories, quote unquote, matter. Yeah. Because all the stories appear in that same continuity. And it's hard to wean us as readers. And I say us because I would have the same problems. Wean us as readers away from that expectation. Remember when they canceled the Legion last year?
1: Uh, the biggest After, after I had reading, yeah, go ahead.
0: At the biggest complaint that I heard from Legion fans after they canceled my Legion, you jerks, right? Was that they made that Legion the Legion of Earth Two, mm-hmm. and in so doing, they just gave it a hand wave and said, "Well, it's the Legion of Earth 2. and the implied, uh, un- unspoken message was that means it doesn't matter. Right. right, right. And everybody went, oh, man, we were we were invested in this. We read this from issue one and 26 issues in. You tell us it's the Earth Two Legion. And that means it doesn't matter anymore. And I mean, that is a very real. Well, I guess my thing is a very real problem.
1: I, I think the reason the reason why I, I, I am in favor of my idea, not only because it's my idea, <laughs> but also because it <laughs> mostly, gives but not all. my idea, but it gives those people who say, But I like I like um, Victorian England Batman. Okay, well, here's some stories that will come out quarterly set in that in that universe or but my Superman is the Grant Morrison Superman. And that's the one that I like. Well, here's a universe where he exists. Yeah, but I really, really like Silver Age Superman. Well, here's a universe where he exists and here's some stories that you tell in that or here's you know, here's here's a universe where Aztec is still around. And I think that's why I like this idea of a multiverse because then everybody gets a little something. You get a little something to say. Well, here's something. It's not going to maybe be a twelve issue series or a monthly series. Maybe it's quarterly. Uh, maybe it's uh, annually. Whatever. But here's something for those people who are really in love with you know the you know the uh, whatever it is the vampire planet.
3: Well, you get that anyway without the multiverse and. and- um, kind of imaginary stories slash else worlds type right. things. Well, but what, they haven't when, they haven't come out as many. Well, they, have, they recently, but they've, they've even put out.
1: That's what the whole countdown uh, thing was, where they were bringing in a lot of those else worlds titles and making them making them real. Uh, so the, the whole
0: countdown was off.
1: Yeah, I know <laughs> that was probably the biggest mistake because they were trying to do it. And I guess what what you what I was going to say when you were talking about shared universe is. Isn't that kind of a ploy to get lesser titles, more recognition in hopes that people are going to jump over because now suddenly Batman bought battles Swamp Thing and now people are like, what's this Swamp Thing thing? I better go check this out and, and see what's going on and suddenly you see this spike in in Swamp Thing uh, stories or, um, you know, it's called Justice League Dark, but it doesn't have any Justice League people that I understand. Who's this Constantine guy? And so, you know, you go scrambling off for stuff that's like, oh, this isn't even in the DC universe type story. So I think that there's, you know, I think you can do stuff that doesn't have to be shared universe. And there are times where I flip flop on. Yeah. I don't really need to see Batman and green lantern teaming up. Um, I just want a green lantern story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there are times where I'm like, yeah, it would be interesting to see what would happen if green arrow and Superman had to team up and Superman couldn't use his powers.
3: The, the shared universe, uh, as far as I'm concerned is the, um terrible engorged appendix that comics refuse mm-hmm. to have removed yeah <laughs> um for decades our comics have moved from having a house stories and house styles to basically letting superstars write whatever they want mm-hmm. and that is that stands diametrically opposed to the idea of the shared universe because you hand Mark Wade a title, and he doesn't want to do what Grant Morrison has been right. doing in a completely different title, even though he wants to involve Batman. Well, that's, um, you give it yeah. to any of those guys, and all they do is contradict each other, right. and mm-hmm. then it's up to the fans to try to rationalize it. We can't, and DC hits the reset button. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. That's, that basically keeps happening.
1: Well, that's really apparent with this Grayson series that's coming out in, in July, because people are like, well, can't people just connect? Um, uh, Dick Grayson with Bruce Wayne and now Batman's identity is exposed and it's like well yes but keep in mind that in the new 52 reboot Batman Inc. came over into the new 52 at which point Batman said he was working for or uh, Bruce Wayne said he was working for Batman and funding Batman so it's not that far of a stretch and nobody's identity mm-hmm. is is skewed but you know it's so obscure and it's so told 50 different ways that you're right Rodrigo people do get confused and don't know what's going on, which is why I think that we're going to see another universe reboot before 2016.
2: Before, there's,
3: there's an, there's an easy 2016. way to do no, I, 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 I believe you. <laughs> I'm not, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think this is going to happen at least one more time before they finally either take the route of going the multiverse, like you're suggesting, or finally just go, you know what, let's do the image thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. if Witchblade shows up in Invincible, that's which that's the Witchblade from Invincible. Like right. there's no mm-hmm. it has no impact on the Witchblade comic. Right. That she was there.
1: Well, I I only say 2016 because that's when the next – that's when DC finally gets off its – Warner Brothers finally gets off its butts and releases a new (laughs) uh, franchise movie, which is supposedly going to lead to the Justice League. And if you're doing something that's set in this crazy universe where nothing is making a lot of sense to to a lot of fans, uh, the movie's not going to do well. But if you can tie them together like what we see uh, Marvel doing with Amazing Spider-Man 2 coming out. No, a month before, what happens? Peter Parker's back. Hooray! So I think we're going to see that. But here's the other thing. Here's the other thing about a cool multiverse. 75 years of Batman and this week on Teen Titans Wednesday, depending on when you're listening to this, could be tonight, could be tomorrow. But uh, right after the Teen Titans cartoon show, you can see the full Darwin Cook Batman Beyond short. Did you guys see this that we had up on the site earlier this week? The original voices—the you know. original voices of Batman, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kevin Conroy, and then the original Terry McGinnis—a reteam and a Darwin Cook-inspired um, uh, story about uh, well, them battling Batman robots Ooh. from the Batman a- animated series. And we've got about two and a half minutes of the short up, uh, and the it looks look,
2: the full thing. It's going to be on.
1: It's going to uh, be Cartoon on uh, Cartoon Network, I Cartoon think, Network. or whatever, because it just kind of ended in a weird kind of ending mm-hmm. place. Whereas the um, uh, Paul, uh, not the Paul Dini, the Bruce Tim one that we saw the other day was the full story. So I think we're going to I think Yahoo only got a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. But, man, it looks cool. It looks really cool. And uh, some people are saying that this is going to uh, is kind of an indicator that maybe Warner Brothers is looking at rebooting Batman Beyond as an animated series, which Mm -hmm. I would be okay with, too.
0: Depends on how they do it. Yeah, I guess a lot of people also it's a a great prop. Because a lot of people are attached to it, yeah, mm-hmm. and wow. it hasn't it hasn't been rebooted from here to eternity like so many of their other.
1: Well, projects. they've got that Batman Beyond Beyond series. That's the digital release, and before it hits print, oh, and then it's yeah. part of the it's yeah, going to be part of the five year later storyline.
0: Really good, I have oh, Maybe it. I'm thinking of something different, uh, but uh, the ongoing quarterly Beyondy Beyond thing.
1: Yeah, the Batman Beyond digital version that comes it out. Week. It's like every week, yeah. yeah. Like,
0: like, tiny shorts Is this the one, this. one that's been running for a couple of years or mm-hmm. is this a new yeah.
1: one? Yeah, yep, a couple of years. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that the Darwin Cook is the one that animated or um, did all the art for the original Batman Beyond um, opening Open. sequence. Yeah. And so they're giving him this chance to do some Batman. So if you guys haven't checked it out, head over to Majorspoilers.com. And uh, and check it out over there while you're over there. Check out Jason Inman's uh, videos that he took over at WonderCon. Our f- first video is up now. I think he's going to try to do f- uh, several more throughout the week. His first one is uh, Len Wein that he interviews uh, real briefly, but only had uh, about three or four minutes to sit down with him and talk. Uh, so that's a really cool interview. So you want to check that out and just giving you all a heads up. If you are not doing anything over the July 4th weekend, you're going to want to head out to Salt Lake City, the Snowbird Resort, where we will be. For Nerdtacular 2014. Who's going to go? It's going to be Zach and me and Matthew and Rodrigo and Rob and Brian and Adriana. And uh, so far, I know for sure that Matthew and I will be doing a panel at the at the uh, event where we're talking about comic book collecting and grading, which a lot of people are very excited for. And then we're going to have a recording session panel slash panel on uh, major spoilers slash critical hit. And we're going to see how that lines up. And there's going to be some other panels that will be announced very soon, as soon as we get confirmations from everybody on the board uh, for on those uh, panels. And um, you can find out more at Nerdtacular.com. So go check that out. Tickets are still available. Rooms yeah. are still available. It's a great event.
0: It's going to be weird because I've never done Critical Hit with pants on before.
1: Well, I'm, we're not actually <laughs> going to play a game. It's just going to be uh Critical Hit, major spoilers, Q&A kind of thing that we know of right now. Right. So It's going
3: gonna, it's gonna to be a seven-hour panel. Yes. Awesome.
1: <laughs> no, we've only got like an hour. Maybe so I won't wear pants. It's whatever we can do in an hour. Oh, I forgot. Where the heck is it? Zach, I don't know. run, run, run out into that. the table. Yeah, run out onto the table. There's that yellow DHL package. Oh yeah, bring that in. So one of our one of our fans sent us something this week. I'm going to turn on video for this so that you guys can vamping, see this.
0: Vamping, vamping. Um, oh, so if you're
1: wanting to know, Matthew had mentioned at the top of the show, a bunch of our uh, subscribers, uh, people who had helped sponsor at the $10 uh, level. If you want to be part of that, you just need to head over to members.majorspoilers.com. Uh, that helps us out. You can become a 2 a 5 or a $10 a month recurring sponsor. Uh, that helps us tremendously in doing all the things that we do. And even more, and there is more coming up. And you also get some cool extra stuff like some art, behind-the-scenes stuff, bonus podcasts in May. Zach and I sit down and do a bonus tracks on Thor, The Dark World. That should be interesting. Um, But uh, (laughs) it should be interesting. It should be. So our good Good, friend, Vista Papadopouloski... Sent me a package oh, this week.
0: Oh, yeah, Webster's dad.
1: Yes. <laughs> Poplus sent us...
0: Vistapa plus
1: sent us these things.
0: What the heck?
2: Oh, my goodness. Ah! Oh, cool! <laughs> Such great. He, a great... He told me what they want. Podcasts. Oh, this one looks... Uh, so
1: he sent us a bunch of luchadori masks.
0: Oh! Uh, I want that one.
1: I think this one I want. Is that a- Here's a, a silver one. Here's a silver one.
0: Oh, the silver one is. Pro- oh, that's El Santo.
1: Yeah, I think that one will be for Rodrigo.
0: The I only- think Rodrigo gets El Santo.
1: <laughs> and then this one that looks like Bane. Who's this one? Do you guys know who this one is? The black with the silver.
3: Yeah, that's um, that's El Rayo de Jalisco. And then
1: there is yeah. this uh, uh, black and white, a uh, black and yellow with black stars <laughs> at the eyes and like hair that on top. Happy
0: hair on top.
1: That's, that's some
3: kind of crazy clown guy. Okay. <laughs> crazy.
1: So he sent those to us. Thank you. That's really cool uh, that you sent it this way. Sorry, Zach. I guess there's not, uh, I guess there's not one for you this time. Oh, Actually, I he said there was a customs. Mask. He said there was a customs issue where he, they wouldn't allow him to send four through, uh, through customs. So uh, what a strange. <laughs> that's, yeah. So that's here's what he the said. story. Yeah. Sadly to inform that customs services only let me send you three masks. Very strange. And I said that's okay, no worries. Zach uh we don't, we don't want to cover up Zach's beauty with a are, mask.
3: Well, there are there are a lot of wrestlers who fight without masks, so there you go. That's true. Zach, oh, probably I'll bring a singlet.
0: Lost you guys can wear that the mask.
3: <laughs> I'll
1: wear
2: a singlet, you wear the mask. Well, thank you. Thank
1: you for I
0: that. I, I am telling you right now, I want to see Rodrigo in the <laughs> El Santo mask. <laughs> uh-huh. I this is this is Rodrigo one groans. of my now lifelong goals. <laughs>
1: If you guys want to read a really good article Rodrigo wrote um, about uh, the the Luchadore, uh, what's your what's the address? Is that over at your magic turtle Tumblr?
3: Yeah, it's magic turtle. It's tumblr.magicturtle.com. Wait, no. It's, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. Magic turtle dot Tumblr.
1: Yeah, there's no e right. e in Tumblr. It's, it's a really um, good article and I found an it awesome very fascinating. Piece. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. So go and check that out. All right. So more stuff over at Majorspoilers.com. Lots of good information over there. More podcasts coming out. All thanks to you guys. We've got a new Zach on film this week. We've got a new Munchkin land this week. We've got um, interviews coming out the wazoo. Like I said, the Brad will interview coming up shortly. Um, got a dueling review. We've got more critical hit. Everybody. I, I've, I've asked people to tell me whether they like a gremlin of goblins or a Buick of goblins. And so far, it seems split <laughs> between the two
0: a um, short which, bus of goblins.
1: Yes, exactly. Let us get to some reviews quickly cuz we are running out of time. Um Review. reviews. So Transformers Windblade number 1. That came out last week? Matthew? It did. Okay. Why don't you uh, By the us- way,
0: apparently the mask with the stars for eyes may be Super Muñeca. Okay. <laughs> or perhaps Muñeca. My Spanish accent is very, very questionable when Rodrigo is in the room because I'm very self-conscious about it. Transformers colon, Windblade, number one from IDW Comics. Uh, the Transformers universe, the main universe from IDW, has been through a lot of changes lately. And this book is one of the ones that I find most interesting because essentially the war is long over. Autobots, Decepticons, and unaffiliated people have returned to Cybertron. And recently, Cybertron has a new king, and that king is Starscream. Really? Wow. Yes. Starscream is now the the leader of the entire uh, world of Cybertron. Megatron is now wearing the symbol of the Autobots. Uh, Metroplex, the living Autobot city, has been badly injured during the war and is now just a city and is unable to communicate through anything other than the old language of Cybertron. And the old language of the cities requires a translator, and that's where Windblade comes in. Windblade is one of the rare Autobots that uses a female pronoun and has a vaguely female form and a really kind of a cool design. And this whole issue is a a spotlight on Windblade's position as the communicator for Metroplex, basically the last... Settlement, the last living city on Cybertron. So everybody's going to be coming there. You can't necessarily trust Starscream. I don't know if you know anything about your Transformers, but basically rule one in Transformers is Optimus Prime is noble. Rule two is don't turn your back on Starscream. This is a really interesting issue because you see the usual thing where it's like, oh, here's guys we know. Blur, for instance, is uh, playing... Uh, Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca and running a bar. And You remember Blur from the movie Blur was the one who talks really, really fast. Hmm. And she goes to Blur's bar for that standard Star Wars cantina sequence to get some information. Really well done. Very, very genre savvy writing throughout this issue. Uh, Windblade, by the way, has a gorgeous alt mode as this kind of weird jet looking thing. Mm -hmm. And so all of the flying sequences, the robot sequences are great. We get a little bit of Ironhide. We get a lot of Starscream. And um, Windblade has a partner, Chromia, who is also a female looking Autobot. And the one thing they don't do in this issue is they don't broach the topic of Cybertronian gender, which I, I simultaneously appreciate and hate. There's actually a moment where somebody says to Windblade, so what's the deal with you and her calling yourself she? And there's this awkward moment and then the story moves on having hung that particular lampshade. But throughout the issue, Windblade is trying to figure out how she can best serve her two roles. One as the speaker for Metroplex and the other as someone who honestly wants to believe that her leader has her best interests at heart. Um, It does not end the way I expected, Mm. and it does lead into ongoing events in the Transformers universe. I'm going to give this one four slices of meatloaf. Very well drawn, very interesting kind of uh, world-building stuff. Wheels within wheels and little bits of civil disobedience here and there. And the fact that you know Starscream is in here and you can hear that Chris Lotta voice, but he's also a really, really effective, slimy kind of... uh, Mayor of the Evil City character, which I think is really mm-hmm. kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It's taken a lot of people and it's put them in different roles and it does it in a fascinating way. You'll probably want to have some sort of prior interactions with Transformers, but I think at this point in time that may go without saying for a Transformers comic book. I don't know. Either way, uh, Four Slices of Beanloaf, an interesting book, Windblade, and the main character looks phenomenal.
1: Cool. All right. That's out uh, last week from IDW Publishing. I really like it. Uh, you know, people are always free to uh, send us uh, new comics, uh, independent comics, those kinds of things. We do enjoy getting them in. Unfortunately, we can't review all of them, but we do give them uh, some consideration. We look them over. And this week, Rodrigo is uh, taking a look at one of those books that came in.
3: Yeah, I'm having a look at Martian Comics number one. Um, So Martian Comics number one. Is the story of a young woman who is kind of having hallucinations about this, uh, about Mars and uh, the civilization on Mars. Although they talk about the fact that, you know, we've, we've had eyes on Mars for a while and there's no civilization there, but she keeps seeing this, this civilization and she's kind of in the body of this, uh, Martian lady who is, uh, and you just kind of get to see them. Kind of jump back and forth throughout their uh, their life. Um, The the girl is really bored with her life, and so is the Martian lady. So we just get a lot of like back and forth. Like, oh, I'm so bored, so I try to do progressively more extreme things to deal with the boredom. Um, At the end, there's a big plot twist that I understand kicks off the series. From reading like the solicit for it, right. right. uh, which I was uh, surprised about because it has a really hardcore kind of uh, Twilight Zone slash Outer Limits ending. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know that that uh, traditionally is two separate things, but I mean, it had like it actually kind of walks the line between those two, you know, uh, it, it, it's uh, it, it has a big realization at the end. And if they just like end that and this was an anth- anthology book, I would probably be way more on board than them, like, actually picking up from there and seeing what happens afterwards. Right. Um, so, I mean, picking up this issue is worth it for that little twist. If you're into, you know, your classic um, Twilight Zone or Outer Limit style tales, uh, it is a book for adults. Mm-hmm. There are lots of boobies in it, and there's uh, there's actually a Martian orgy in it. So... Um, definitely don't just pass this to your uh 6-year-old nephew um oh, or dang it. you know i, I mean yeah
0: 8-year-old nephew is perfectly fine he'll be yeah.
3: good. I'm just saying clear stuff with their mom yeah, first yeah, yeah, i man. learned that one the hard way yep
0: um,
3: so yeah i mean uh the art is good i like the character design you know a, a lot of the times we get indie comics and i have a hard time with them because they are some aspect of them is seriously liking but this one was good i mean i you know I, I and i don't mean to to put indie comics down in general but a lot of the time we get stuff that hasn't been properly copy edited or that hasn't um where the the art is maybe a little bit subpar or whatever but this one is actually really solid i think this is a good effort it's a good indie comic like at least this individual issue i'm curious to see where they take it from here but i this was a, a strong enough um i guess uh, offering that uh if this story doesn't pan out having this first issue is is just good enough in and of itself um i'm gonna give this uh three and a half slices of meatloaf I think it's uh it's it's a well above average uh effort and um you guys should check it out. Cool, Thanks. cool, cool.
1: Uh, out this
3: week from Dark Horse
1: Comics is Buffy the Vampire Slayer season 10 number 2. Now, Matthew and I reviewed the very first issue of season 10 uh, over on the Dueling Review podcast. And if you're not familiar with that, that's where each week Matthew and I sit down with a brand new comic book and we read it and we discuss it and banter back and forth and uh hilarity ensues usually. Um and some people are like, well, you guys need to continue on reviewing some of these books and talking about some of these books. So this week I am picking up issue number two. And this picks right up where issue one left off, where uh, they were uh, attacked by a bunch of vampires and werewolves. And the vampires are doing a whole bunch of things that they weren't able to do before. Uh, Giles shows back up, but he's been reduced to a young boy. Um, kind of looks a lot like Harry Potter. Um, take that for what what it is. Um, and then they start to... Try to figure out, well, how come these vampires are walking around in daylight? And the big revelation is because magic has been rebooted, the whole book of vampires is being rewritten. And um, some things are still in continuity from before. Other things have changed dramatically. Uh, The um, Slayer spirit, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, still can only inhabit uh, women, but it can also – Side with males, so there can be male slayers, but they have to – they don't have the full slayer powers. They just kind of have slayer insight, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. This all leads to the, the, the Scooby gang realizing that, hey, maybe that one vampire guy that we all know might have some answers to this. So they send Xander and um, – oh, the kid's sister. I forget her name. Never did like her. uh Dawn. Uh, Dawn out to Transylvania to go meet with uh, Dracula. And there are some very funny moments. What I like about this is that this is the first time as I read through this issue that it actually felt like television dialogue being delivered on the page, Mm -hmm. snappy, quick, snarky, um, you know, insight between the characters. Uh, It was just really good writing. I really liked the writing and the art this time I felt was much better than what I've seen in the past where Don looks like Don, and Anya looks like Anya and Xander looks like I mean, the characters look like the characters, even Buffy, even though it's not uh, a direct on model of Sarah Michelle Geller, still looks very much Sarah Michelle Gellerish without having to pay, I'm sure, a huge royalty right uh, for her likeness. So overall, the art was really good. Uh, the story, I thought, was great with the writing. Uh, it's interesting to see how they're rebooting the Buffy universe as kind of a soft internal reboot with this reboot of magic. But uh, Faith shows up. Uh, what's the other A girl's name, Kendra, what was her name? Uh, The other Slayer, I forget what her name was. No, no, Faith is in this one, but there's another.
0: Kendra was the Slayer who was killed. Okay. Uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, she's back. She's the Slayer who had an affair with, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, Kennedy is back as well. So um, it's all good times to read it, and I'm giving uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer season 10 number two, four out of five slices of meatloaf. So go pick it up. A lot of fun. Dark Horse Comics. Zach, it is up to you to bring it home with Hero right. Bear and the Kid.
2: Yeah, Hero Bear and the Kid number one is coming out this week from a uh, Boom the Kaboom side of that company, and it is uh, Mike Kunkel's return to the series. I'd never read uh, Hero Bear and the Kid before. I've got a copy. I'll give you. But uh, I remember seeing previews or when it was first announced, it was coming to Kaboom, and I was completely intrigued by the art style, and so that's what made me pick this up. And oh, I'm so glad I even I picked it up because of the art. Is fantastic. I love the uh, curvy kind of style on the black and white, but uh, keeping the red on Hero Bear's, uh, Hero Bear's cape mm-hmm. uh, just adds a cool aesthetic to it. But the story on this is awesome. It's totally an all ages story. And by that, I mean anyone who can uh, enjoy a comic will enjoy this. It is absolutely fun to see this kid have a super cool bear that transforms, and they can fly around and battle uh, giant uh, crocodiles in a zoo. Mm -hmm. And there's an evil guy. He's got these funny sidekicks, and they have a horrible, horrible plan. And there's some big, I think uh, they feel like a pretty big reveal for their uh, butler Henry. Yes. He gets some character development in this, which I I feel like is a pretty big reveal for people that know the story. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to spoil that, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool, and I feel like it really fits in. Uh, from what the, the world that you can kind of tell he's building. And, uh, and and if you've never read this series before, don't worry. Uh, you pretty much get a rundown of what is all happening in this, who all the main characters are, what's their deal, where where their backgrounds are, all throughout this issue while still pushing forward a new story and um, seeing where that's going to go. So this is a whole, whole lot of fun. Um yeah. I'm there's only this is a 1 of 5. Uh I'm absolutely in this until the end. Um Tyler has some great moments with Hero Bear and how they act and what their relationship is and you get to see one of his friends and um their their butler Henry is completely interesting on his mannerisms and how he interacts uh with the characters. And this is just good times, I think. is This would be a great read to, like, a kid right before bedtime. I'm not going to scare him or anything. I think it would be a great, uh, just put yourself to sleep. It's uh, oh, good, good. good stuff. Uh,
1: and I, so a, you're volunteering to read this to my minions?
2: No, I am uh. not doing that. Uh, <laughs> what I, what was really interesting about this issue is that there's narration to the story, but it's clearly Tyler at an older stage in his life kind of retelling this story and so it's very interesting Mm -hmm. to see what kind of insights he gives and he kind of knows what's happening but he's not uh he'll just drop a little hint here and there and not giving you the full story so that uh really makes it quite an interesting story and the art is just it's just fantastic just to look at cool so i'm gonna give uh this issue four out of five slices of meatloaf excellent
1: all right listeners you can head over to majorspoilers.com you can read these uh, you can read many reviews over there Uh, You can also uh, buy some of these comics, trade paperbacks, other things that we're discussing by clicking on that Amazon.com link and buying away. Remember, every time you click on that Amazon.com link over at Majorspoilers.com and you purchase something, doesn't matter what it is, big or small, a little bit comes <laughs> An back our way. An angel gets
0: its way. Pretty yeah, much.
1: I mean, way. we're allowed to do another podcast in the future. So I used it to buy a battery this week. A battery? Like yeah. a double A?
2: No, 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 no. Was, did you uh, buy
1: your cool uh, new light through the Amazon No, light? I
2: couldn't buy it through Amazon, but I did buy the battery to power the cool light through Amazon. Excellent. Oh, and God. so a little
1: bit comes back our way, and I know that there's people all over the, uh, the country, U.S., unfortunately, this... Uh, doesn't link any longer to uh, yeah. our listeners overseas. I'm disappointed Amazon changed their policy on that. That's not our policy. That's Amazon's policy. But that's, uh, that's okay. Little Bit Comes Our Way allows us to do more and more each and every week. And we thank everyone for their support. Reviews are done. It's time to get into the major spoilers poll of the week. Poll of the
4: week, 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 week. I
1: think week, Silver week, Gray week, sent week. this in. He was oh. asking questions about the live-action DC Comics television show and was asking which one – has the best theme song. Now, of course, there have been any number of DC live-action television shows that have made it to air, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superboy, um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but we're focusing this week on five shows, and we're thinking of the theme song to those five shows, and we want to know which show has the best theme song. Your choices are Batman theme song from 1966, the na 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 batman You've got Wonder Woman from da, 1975. Da, da, da. You've got Smallville. That's the Somebody Save Me song. Uh, the Arrow theme song, which is relatively new. And then the Birds of Prey theme song from the, I don't even know if it made it. I know they made 13 episodes of that show. I don't know if all 13 of them yeah, aired.
0: Did. did all 13 of them? They did like them, half a season. Yeah, they rest did half a season. DVD. Okay.
1: So those are the choices. The Batman theme song, the Wonder Woman theme song, Smallville, you know, quote, Somebody Save Me. The Arrow theme song, and then the Birds of Prey theme song um it, which is revolution by
0: uh, amy allen
1: matthew which one did you
0: pick okay well you have to understand that usually i would go with you know the old classic stuff and i would look and go oh yeah batman theme songs from 1966 the oldest and the best because you know if you're making fun of me that's the way i think but you have to understand brent lindblad Brent Lindblad and I went to high school together and grade school. And at one point, we were on some sort of trip. I think it was an orchestra trip. And for the better part of 19 hours, Brent Lindblad went, nah, 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 until you really wanted to just strangle him to death with his own entrails. But being a good, you know, fellow, I, I didn't do such a thing. And he's, he's a great guy, six foot 10, owes me five bucks, but that's neither here nor there. So I went with. The classic Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, because a Linda Carter, Wonder Woman. Come on. Wonder Woman. Come on. <laughs> she's a gorgeous woman. <normally> and plus, you know, Wonder woman. you have to listen to that song. It, it unlike the Batman theme song, it tells a story. Right. In her satin tights. She's fighting for our rights. She'll make a liar far, far, nafu, which I think is important to remember. So I chose the 1976, 75 Wonder Woman theme song. Rodrigo, what about you? I think that,
3: um, I can understand Matthew's frustration with the uh, Batman theme, but, uh, I think that it's bigger than Batman. I think it's bigger than any, uh, it's bigger than any of us. It like kind of na 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 as its way backwards through time. To where, like, cavemen were like painting it on on <laughs> in Lascaux. I, I think, I think the Batman theme is something that has become so big and important that, you know, a, a, an entire generation has not seen the Adam West Batman and they're still probably familiar with that song. I, I would argue, probably more so than one I, generation. Well, I, my generation, at least. Um, even though I think the the Batman show was already off the air um when we were kids, that was at a point in TV history where you could rerun mm-hmm. old shows like that. That that straight up doesn't happen anymore. Right. You know, it's like the 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 farthest back that reruns go, if you watch Nick at night, they're airing Everybody Loves Raymond.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. You know it's like the reruns get like shorter and shorter uh, as far as time span, so I don't know I mean you you might be right it might uh, you know well I not, mean just to show you the popularity
1: not- of that song though, my three year old when we talk Batman, will sit there and go na 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 um and mm-hmm. and and know whenever you say Batman that that's the song that goes with Batman. And in fact, well, even in for a while, defense, when he was two, sing
0: that song, sleep.
1: <laughs> when he was two for a long time, we would point to a picture of Batman. We'd say, who is that? And he'd go, no, 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 Batman. So,
3: you know, for what <laughs> it's I mean, worth. And, and my and nephews, nephews know it. That. We yeah. sat down and yeah. um, it's, it's partially because I have uh, an uncle that's very interested in teaching them uh, the 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 history of important things like superhero TV theme songs. <laughs>
0: Teach so, us the old ways. Teach us
3: the Rodrigo. In, in the before time and the long, long ago there was the Batman TV show. Then there was the uh, really funky Spider-Man yeah. uh, intro, which yeah, which is another one. Exceeded. It's another one that continues to to exist mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. after that, and long after uh, everyone's forgotten the theme to every other Spider-Man cartoon mm-hmm. of <laughs> which of which there have been six thousand. So, Zach, which one? Which one did you so, pick? yes,
2: I went with Batman. Also, it's uh, like we already discussed, it's such an iconic theme that people who don't read comics or don't watch mm-hmm. anything else that it's still a thing in pop culture just by itself just those that na 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 is so permeated uh-huh. through pop culture and the internet and just like america that it's completely iconic and it transcends yeah it transcends america.
1: America. It, interesting so it's interesting that you say iconic because iconic doesn't necessarily mean the best and i went with not the batman theme song Oh. I went with Smallville, somebody save me because that song, even though it's a poppy song, even though it's, you know, it's a, you know, uh, something you would hear on a top 20 show. It kind of it kind of tells you what people need. They need somebody to save them. It's like uh um holding out for a hero. That that song um where we need somebody to come and save us mm-hmm. and who is that going to be? It's going to be this kid from Smallville. So I went with with Smallville um theme song. As the best uh, theme song. And as we go down the, uh, the list of comments over at Majorspoilers.com, Jason Inman kind of says the same thing. He says, this is a few times where I have to say Smallville. Its theme song perfectly captured the character. And while sometimes it was annoying, I mostly watched every opening credit sequence of that series. Uh, Joshua says the Batman 66th song is an iconic song. Adults and kids who have never seen the show can sing it. Plus, it's easy to remember all the words. Will says, I agree that a Batman and Wonder Woman theme songs are iconic. The question is, which theme is the best for me? The answer to that one still remains is still remains on my iPod and is a regular on my playlist rotation. The Birds of Prey theme song revolution by Amy Allen. And he provides a link there to the song because I certainly couldn't find it uh, easily when I was trying to search for it. Um, Let's see. Matt says, I'm going with Batman. Russ Katz says Wonder Woman. Mike Estep says Smallville. And Law says it was tough between Batman and Wonder Woman, but I went with Wonder Woman because I still remember the words. That's got to
0: count for something.
1: How does right. everyone else vote so far?
0: She can make a hawk a dove. She can end a war with love. She can make a Laura Farnafu. 102 votes as of right now. And cool. a whopping 39% mm, going exactly it. where we thought that they would go. Mm-hmm. The Batman theme song. That's like 40 votes out of 100. Yeah, there you go. It's a lot easier to do. In fact, I'm going to need everybody to just vote in blocks of 100 from now on because it's easier to do that. <laughs> uh, 25% agreeing with Stephen on the, save me. me. That one also kind of bores into your brain and stays there. I mm-hmm. remember working in television around 2001 and just kind of, boy, it, you just want to carve it out with a spoon. Yep. 21%. Wonder Woman, uh, 10% Arrow theme song, only 5% remember Birds of Prey. It was a pretty short-lived show. (laughs) It
1: it really was. It was like there and gone very quickly. So, listeners, you can head over to Major Spoilers. Well, it had
0: four seconds of Batman in
1: it. Yeah. You can head over to Majorspoilers.com. You can cast your vote in the Major Spoilers poll of the week. And if you want a great deal on some earbuds, you need to head over to tweakedaudio.com. Pick yourself up a pair of tweaked audio uh, earbuds, a lot of different styles, a lot of different um, varieties. We're glad that they're a sponsor of the major spoilers podcast and you can uh, thank them for sponsoring us. And you can get yourself a really cool deal. When you go over to tweak audio.com and you use the checkout code major, you get 33% off your price. And this week, I know somebody tweeted, I don't know. It's, it's probably not easily in my, uh, my mentions list on Twitter, but they, they said that, Hey, they're listening to critical hit and all the other podcasts with their tweaked audio headphones. And uh, they're glad that they use that checkout code major. And you should, too. And we thank Tweaked Audio for their support at TweakedAudio.com. I have a real fascination for all things Cthulhu. And um, I don't know where this obsession comes from, because as you listeners know... In uh, previous episodes, I've talked about how as a young kid, I hated everything horror and it just scared the crap out of me. But then somehow I, I discovered Cthulhu and I've just fallen in love with that creepy horror concept. And then as my love for Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos has grown, I've wanted to learn more about H.P. Lovecraft. And here's how weird the world works. So I'm teaching a Star Wars class and one of my uh, co-instructors, uh, I just casually mentioned something about Lovecraft. And he goes, oh. I I've written about and studied about Lovecraft, and I said, I've got to get you on the class, uh, get you on this uh, podcast so we can discuss more about H.P. Lovecraft and, and Cthulhu and all these things. So I w- want to welcome Dr. Brad Will, who is the associate professor uh, in the English department at Fort Hayes State University. And, and uh, Dr. Will, welcome. Hi. And you've actually got some other titles beyond just – associate professor.
4: I do. I'm, I'm also the assistant dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and I am the director for the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies. So if people
1: are wondering, Stephen, how do you teach a Star Wars class and get it approved on your campus? Well, it kind of helps if the assistant <laughs> dean is, <laughs> is there also teaching the class for you and can help that approval process go through. So took care of some business. Yeah, there you go. So a lot of people have been asking about this Star Wars class uh, or interested in the Star Wars
4: Class that we're we're teaching this semester,
1: why Star Wars and American culture? First
4: off, well, Star Wars is I, in, in well, in my estimation, the single most important cultural artifact of the 20th century. Really? Yeah. Why so? Well, I think it's had the greatest impact. I think it uh, uh, it it still echoes. What are we now uh, approaching 40 years, 40 years later? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's still not. Not just kind of interesting to people, but deeply meaningful to people, uh, deeply meaningful even to to my sons. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it carries on generation after generation and just, just uh, it keeps holding on and we can't get away from it.
1: And I think what people are con- confused about is that we don't talk Star Wars specifically in the course – Right. I mean, we'll, we'll mention Star Wars and we'll mention elements that happened in the production of the movies. We'll talk about events and situations that occur in the movies, but we don't sit there and just nerd out over Star Wars trivia.
4: Right, right. Yeah. The, the metaphor I keep going to in the class is that we use Star Wars as a lens for examining culture. And so mm-hmm. culture is what we're really studying about, what we're really learning about in the class. Uh, but Star Wars becomes the means of learning about that.
1: And it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I've had a lot of fun. And I think the students, I mean, we've talked about racism. We've talked about media manipulation. We've talked about Hollywood accounting. We've talked about what is canon and not canon and who makes these determinations throughout the course. And it's been really, really fascinating. I think the students have really gotten a lot lot out of it. Yeah, I certainly have. Uh, Yeah, me too. But I think your claim that Star Wars has had more of an impact, that's interesting because we're talking about Lovecraft. Yeah, And one could argue that Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos have had as much or greater impact in horror in the last hundred years.
4: Well, or in the last 30 years, yeah, maybe 30 years. I mean, mean, Lovecraft has this, this ever increasing trajectory of relevance, mm -hmm. which is also strange because you would expect it to go in completely the opposite direction, right? That that an author would, would become less and less relevant as, uh, as time progresses. But, Exactly the opposite has happened with Lovecraft. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, probably a lot to do with uh, copyright Mm -hmm. and the fact that Lovecraft totally invited other people to participate. And so the Cthulhu mythos has grown and grown and grown. So do you think Lovecraft then is one of the first people
1: to make use of the creative commons? Maybe so I because mean, the, people are like, "Hey, I'd like to use this
4: Necronomicon idea in in this book I'm writing." Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 you know they have written contracts. I mean, well these letters uh, where he is you know o- over his own signature said, "Yes, feel free to use this." Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So Creative Commons is exactly the sort of model that he was using uh, way back uh, in the 30s. It's kind of
1: crazy yeah. to think about that. I mean, just somebody who, especially at a time, and I think it, when we look at the uh, other characters like the Shadow. And Doc Savage with um, um who was it? The Street and whatever the publisher was. How they were, especially on the Shadow, really clamping down on this is our property. You can't use this for anything else. If you try to create even a character that even remotely resembles this, you'll be in a lawsuit. And even today, you know they they hold on to the uh, to the copyright yeah uh, mm-hmm. of the Shadow uh, very very closely. And, and Doc Savage and a lot of those too, and you know are not even. For the most part, using shadow writers or shadow authors to pin uh, those stories. So we look at uh, Lester Dent and we realize that well, that's not the name of the person who actually – um I forget which way it is. Lester Dent wrote all of the Doc Savage novels under the pseudonym of uh, Kenneth Robeson, I believe, or maybe it's F- Flip Flop. I got nothing. Okay. But it, uh, I'll look it up and our listeners are probably shouting, Stephen, you're a Dog Savage fan. How can you dare m- confuse those two? Uh, but, you know, this, here we have um, Lovecraft who submits stuff to Weird Science Magazine or Amazing Stories Magazine. And he gets published under his own name and he gets a following. And people ask if I can use this stuff. And I think it's just incredible that he's like, yeah, go ahead and do that. And you see Clive Barker. You see Wes Anderson. You see uh, Stephen King, all directly influenced by the Cthulhu mythos years later.
4: Yeah. Well, then there's a price to be paid for that. Well, Which Love, is. Lovecraft is immensely culturally relevant now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was immensely poor yeah. uh, during his life. I mean, he, you know, the the money was not there.
1: Well, so – We'll talk about, I mean, we can certainly talk about that now. I mean, at one point he was living I mean lived with his aunts most of his life. yeah um, mother put into an institution, right. Uh, father killed
4: himself. Um, is out of the picture, okay, yeah, definitely out of the picture. He had also some mental problems.
1: but his his aunts were okay. They lived modestly. Um, we don't see, or at least in my study of Lovecraft, we don't see him having to actively go out and pursue manual labor.
4: Oh, well, there are weird stories. There's a weird story about, uh, uh, Lovecraft working for a couple of weeks as a, uh, a ticket taker at a movie theater, oh, yeah. this, this kind of stuff just weird, weird little anecdotes of him having little jobs mm-hmm. uh, around town. His notion was that, that he was of the, the providence aristocracy mm-hmm. and, and but the family inheritance you know ran out right uh, pretty severely right and so yeah no aristocracy for him yeah but he kind of li- i mean he wanted people to think that way though right yeah when well, and, and almost
1: couldn't bear to think otherwise of himself he he died when he did die though it was basically malnourishment wasn't it i mean he was i, I think there's a letter where he's like today uh, half of a hot dog and uh leftover sardines from the night before and a. Uh, Half a slice of cake, and that was his his meal for the day.
4: Yeah, but that was in poverty. He had uh, uh, intestinal cancer. Oh, okay. At that so, point, okay. Yeah, like his last year of life was pretty, pretty horrible. Okay. Very, very, very horrible. Didn't he? Didn't get medical attention uh, nearly soon enough, uh, and then was that because of his own belief system, or, or was he just not? I think aware the, of it. The general notion is that yeah, he thought, well, I just have this. This chronic stomach problem, mm-hmm. and if I take a warm bath, it feels better. So mm-hmm. that's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's too bad. Thing. Yeah. That's too bad. So
1: w- let's go back to the beginning of his life.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, he kind of died penniless, uh, right? I mean, yeah, he was at least in rough shape. He was not not necessarily penniless, but not not well off by any means.
1: Where is your study of, of Lovecraft? Where does it come from? Do you come at it from the Cthulhu mythos aspect of it, or do you look at it from here's an author? and i want to study the author
4: or or how do you approach your study of, of lovecraft i'm totally because i'm a cultural studies guy so right. cthulhu mythos is is where it's at and Lo- i mean lovecraft as a guy is interesting but mm-hmm. um uh you know and he's amusing as kind of a, a wacky guy who did some cool stuff right uh, but yeah i'm i'm a total mythos head mythos head yeah. and is that what you wrote your P- was it phd or was it masters yeah my my doctoral thesis was about hp lovecraft and through the philosophy of Immanuel Kant along with William Gibson and Arthur mm-hmm. C Clarke it was it's kind of a it's a mishmash creating a uh, what is it is it creating new sort of new expressions of the
1: sublime okay yeah that's definitely kind of what goes into into this yeah uh, especially with Lovecraft i mean creating these new ideas of you know we i don't even know if we have alien type stories occurring in the 1930s, a uh, little bit here and there.
4: Oh, we've got, well, I mean, HG uh, Wells, Wells, obviously. obviously yes, and, the, and there, so there are a lot of invasion stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah. But not something that slips through the ether and pops right yeah. out into our brains. And
4: yeah, Lovecraft's Lovecraft's weird contribution was the idea that there would be something that would be completely unknowable and unexpressible. Mm-hmm. And and you can pretty much trace that notion to him. Right? Okay. That there would be something that exceeded the bounds of our capability to understand it.
1: Is that why then so many of his characters pass out in, yeah. in the tales where it's like, you know, he gazed upon the horror and passed out and then hours later he awoke and.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a version of uh it's a version of the sublime, right? If you, yeah, yeah. you look into the starry sky at night and you're completely overwhelmed and overcome by the, the notion that you were just in a, uh, tiny little speck in the cosmos and you pass out. Yeah. Or, or you succumb to madness. Is that also a, a weak writing trope? I, no, I don't think it's a weak writing trouble. I, mean, I mean, I think it's what the guy was going for, and there are only so many ways to express that which I cannot be expressed. Characters pass
1: out all the time. I mean, people are passing out left and right in, in his <laughs> tales, and it's just like, oh, I passed out, and then the next thing I know, I woke up to this desolation, and I don't know what happened. But it seems like an easy way to jump over well, a lot of descriptive stuff. I mean, Tolkien did the same thing too. Yeah, in, I was just uh, thinking
4: of that. Yeah, in yeah.
1: Uh, the Hobbit, where yeah. you know,
4: Bilbo Baggins gets knocked on the head and every every and we time. There's avoid a, the giant battle. Yeah, every military action in a, in a Tolkien piece. Is accompanied by someone passing out, and then later hearing about it through exposition. Right, right, yeah. Uh, but no, Lovecraft's deal is he wants to to write about the thing that cannot be expressed. Somebody wrote a a um, cleverly titled article years ago. I'm I'm ashamed. I can't remember his name, but the title was "Effing the Ineffable." <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the ineffable—that thing that you can't express. Now imagine that you set yourself the task of expressing that thing in writing uh, and deliberately you're expressing the thing that you cannot possibly express. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot to do except have people pass out. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the horror. yeah, the horror. there are several pieces where Lovecraft cites. Um, he says, you know, places where you know, people complain about his unnameable creatures and this sort of stuff. Right. Uh, and you know, he's, he's understands that frustration. I think for a lot of people their their concept
1: of what Cthulhu mythos is is this uh, the start of the necronomicon because we see it in movies like Army of Darkness where it yeah. plays this huge role in that maybe that's the first place that people get exposed to the necronomicon. Where does the necronomicon come from? Comes from totally his own imagination. And but he plays it up as being real, right? Oh, I, yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, everything he writes, he writes in the term that yes, this is real and the necronomicon is real and you better believe that it's real to the point where People can't tell if it's real or not today. Well,
4: see, I, I mean, you're yeah. There's this weird effect that that so there were, there have been multiple editions of books called mm-hmm. the Necronomicon mm-hmm. published. One of which was basically um, some people took some indecipherable script and cut it up and pasted it together in various combinations, and so you got a book of literally gibberish, right? And people would pay money for that. Wow, uh, and and. But Lovecraft isn't really doing anything special. Like, there's no great hoax involved. This isn't like – it's just – it just comes up so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that the first part? Is that the first point
1: where we find the Cthulhu mythos starting out is, is in the Necronomicon? Or is he talking about some of the older gods and the other lesser gods in, in other spaces? In, I'm trying to remember where,
4: Yeah, where the Necronomicon first I know it was the, uh, um, the, um, I the mad Arab. Yeah. Yeah. hazred mm-hmm. which is – a. a, a Kind of a pun or anagram of Lovecraft's mother's maiden name. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so in in a certain sense, he identifies himself with the mad Arab who creates the Necronomicon. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But it's hard to I, I the first piece of the Cthulhu mythos. I couldn't. I don't. I couldn't tell you what mm-hmm. it is. I don't. I haven't really looked at it in that. Sort I mean, you'd have to look at kind of
1: the bibliography, maybe. But I mean,
4: it seems. I
1: guess the other thing that's that's fascinating though is you know he'll mention the Necronomicon in passing, right? Or have an entire story about this. But then as he starts to write more and more and more in later years, the works start to reference themselves. Yeah, it's very self-referential. Yeah. How does how does that work in a tabloid monthly series where people may not be picking up every book and even know what you're talking about? I mean, here you have. Um, um, reanimator for example yeah you know his there's like three different stories of the reanimator yeah that uh or what's his name uh west um what is his name herbert west. herbert west yeah and he's you know he has three different stories but they're told years apart yeah and they're not necessarily self-contained stories because what happens in the third story kind of makes reference to things that happen in the first story and if people aren't reading these magazines and sometimes Aren't they published in different
4: magazines? How are people supposed to understand this world building that's going on? Well, there's Lovecraft is, I mean, he's writing for a broader audience, but, but there was the Lovecraft circle that that is, well, it's a pretty large circle. Lovecraft had a great and prolific correspondence with other writers and Mm -hmm. he did a lot to encourage other writers. And so these guys would write for each other in a sense. So, Mm. so. Yeah, the general public might not make the connection between the little the little nod I'm making in, in my story here, but but my buddy in Florida will, you know. That, that's that's sort of that's thing.
1: a fascinating way to look at it because I know that Lovecraft and um um Robert E. Howard had a great relationship with one another yeah. and their correspondences and people can find their letters online, their back and forth letters that they've had that I'm sure encompass volumes yeah. of of space. And it's fascinating that that you bring it up that and we're just writing for each other and if somebody's going to publish it even even more so.
4: Yeah, and there's there's a lot of a lot of nods and winks to each other in these stories. Uh and so, you know, oh, so and so mentioned the necronomicon in his story. Oh, that's very cool, you know. And, and so there that's where they get this just generalized sharing of that universe. And so
1: I also find it fascinating that the Call of Cthulhu comes so late where we're li- hearing about other gods and other lesser demons in other stories until Cthulhu seems to come way late in uh in in the release of this this mythos and yet we call it the Cthulhu mythos and not the necronomicon mythos not the uh you know not the uh, the Lovecraft mythos it's all referred to as a Cthulhu mythlo- mythos
4: yeah well there I, i'm trying to remember how that all plays out i mean there there are all these little stories that are that sort of lead up to that uh, mm-hmm the the Dagon stories and that sort of business, um, yeah. I don't know how that how Cthulhu how the name gets associated there um, because the Cthulhu mythos is a thing. Yeah, you're right. Why why of all why not Narothotep or mm-hmm. or Azathoth or any of the other great old ones that you could you could link that to? Maybe because Cthulhu is the most annoying of the names. You know, the, <laughs> Maybe the easiest to mispronounce consistently.
1: Do you have a favorite? Uh- lesser god in all of this oh cthulhu is cthulhu the the the
4: best one why why why, what makes cthulhu stand out so much well it's just it's such a creepy story right i mean it's the the idea that there's this nasty thing lurking in the ocean slumbering down there waiting for the stars to align to come up and wreak havoc narl thotep is also really 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 cool too Mm -hmm. i mean there's there's a lot of uh there's that one the one little sort of prose poem that Lovecraft has that about Narothotep that's just very dark and and nasty and and grim and wonderful
1: but you know his his stories are not always about um these elder gods those that sleep i mean sometimes they're i mean reanimator for example mm-hmm. uh herbert west is this guy that just wants to bring dead bodies back to life yeah and yeah. it's almost written somewhat as a comedy right i mean yeah yeah that's a that's and kind of people a, don't understand that, or do they understand that?
4: <laughs> well, I, I think some people do. I mean, the satire—if you—if you know the genre, the satire is really there. Um, but if—if if you don't, it also functions perfectly well as a, a spine-tingling little story. Well, I mean, and that's
1: why I mean, I think people who watch—I mean, even though it's a B horror movie type stuff, when they watch the Reanimator movies, yeah, you know, there's some craziness that goes on. But I think people are missing like the subtle lines of, oh, well, I guess the body just wasn't fresh enough. You know, we need to find a more recently dead body instead of something (laughs) that's been dead for, you know, days, weeks, hours. You know, it just really gets on that weird, weird side of things to where it's like, oh, this guy has a sense of humor wrapped up in his stories, too. He's not just all about the macabre.
4: Yeah. I think when those films came out, uh, because the 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 humor in the movies, people thought that was just a movie thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think generally no one understood that those were Lovecraft's funny stories. And the movie was funny because of that. Does he have a lot of funny stories or is just Herbert West just one of those examples of him having fun with the medium? I think that's the one that's sort of straight up satirical. But they're also a little sort of cute jokes and cute moments and stuff. Um, I Don't ask me for one, though. <laughs> give I, me one now. I, I'll give you Lovecraft's only pun that I know of is uh, uh, in uh, The Shadow over Innsmouth with with the fish, the fish people. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh the the protagonist stays at i think the uh is it the yeah the gilman hotel so where there's the gilman oh gilman yeah, yeah but that's yeah. you know there's not a lot of that kind of business in lovecraft that's kind of funny though no it's not i
5: yeah it is i think punny <laughs> humor is funny
1: i think it's funny um but you know um it's interesting too because there are times and this is where i first noticed that um uh he references himself The um, thing on the doorstep, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, just because here's the story of this guy who gets involved in this with this woman who's really being mind controlled by her. You know, creepy old dad and then replaced by the creepy old dad. And then the creepy old dad pops into the mind of the, of the friend of this, this guy. And then the thing (laughs) crawls up on the doorstep trying to tell you what's going on. And it's just, you know, just this weird, creepy stuff. But
4: I I was getting excited to see if you could actually do the plot of that story. Yeah, it's under 30 seconds.
1: It's kind of crazy. If people haven't heard it, there's a great audio adaptation uh, that I've heard where it's all kind of played out, but read and got some cool sound effects, but just this idea of, you know, I've taken over your body. I've taken, you know, I've transferred my my mind into your body. Yeah, and you've got your mind in my old body, and I'm going to stash you away, and it's rotting away. And yet, you figure out a way to to alert your friend of what's going on, and that's why you have to go out and kill him. Yeah, uh, is uh, just a fascinating story, even even more so beyond the fact that you know Cthulhu is a, is awaking and people are going crazy around the world. Um, the thing on the doorstep then actually references or i guess the family comes from insmouth yeah which is again this tying back into um previous stories that people would have had to know about well maybe you don't have to know about it but i think it adds another layer to the storytelling when you understand that these things are connected
4: yeah well, the cool thing is you don't you don't need to understand that at all right and then when you would you figure out oh this is this is that guy mm-hmm. uh then yeah it feels like you've uncovered some piece of hidden lore or something and I think that's, and again, because people are only reading things like At
1: the Mountains of Madness and the uh, Curse of Yigsagoth or whatever, you know, th- that's out there, people aren't uncovering some of these little cool treasures yeah. that tie these together. Um, mm-hmm. Who's the guy that goes astral tripping into these other dimensions and becomes a hero and um, something about a talking oh, cats? Oh, and and,
4: yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah. There are these, these Lord Dunsany stories where there's yeah, yeah. kind of the, the Dreamlands right, stories. Right. Yeah. right. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I, that's uh, Randolph Carter, I think. Oh, well, right, right. Yeah. And, and he's another recurring character that yeah, pops up. Yeah. And just
1: has these cool, you know, astral trip, dreamland adventures. Yeah. They're not that cool, though.
4: Well, okay. They're long and complicated.
1: <laughs> why Why are they not? Why are they not cool? Beyond the fact that they meander and
4: – They meander a lot. I mean, just even, you know, a little, like a story of the cats of Althar about a, yeah. a world of cats. Right. Yeah. Uh, Oh, and the names. I mean, every place has got some kind of crazy goofball name that means nothing. I mean, it has no, like, here's a name. You'll encounter a name. It has no reference anywhere else. It's just, you know, these cats live in Uthar. These Mm -hmm. cats live in Schmogbog or Mm -hmm. whatever. And you don't care. It's just this weird window dressing that's on this story, mostly because Lovecraft was really, really, really into kitties.
1: Oh really?
5: Yeah, really. Yeah, really. I didn't really know that. Yeah, yeah.
4: He's yeah. not. <laughs> you hear about the old crazy old
1: lady that lives with cats. He wasn't a crazy old man that lived with cats.
4: No, but there was a there's a lot of correspondence between uh, Lovecraft and his friends about you know whose cat has died recently and what's your cat up to. And oh, that interesting. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Did yeah. he did he attach some kind of other
1: meaning to cats beyond just? I like them. No, I think he just really he really <laughs> was into cats. Okay, so he wasn't like, the, you know, they're the evil, you know, uh, oh, no, no, demon no. or anything like that that I no,
4: need to. No, cats are just fun, apparently. I, yeah. I mean, that, that's cool. Lovecraft was really, um, I mean, he nerded it up big time. You know, there's there's a whole, he, he would call himself an antiquarian. You know, he mm-hmm. really, really liked old castles and, and old buildings and stuff. Uh, but But if Lovecraft were alive today, he'd just be like a hardcore Renfear kind of guy. Yeah, he wasn't really into history as such. He wasn't a historian. Mm -hmm. He just liked the trappings of really old stuff. So you think he'd be able to
1: tell an awesome D and D? He'd be able to spin an awesome D and D adventure? Probably. Yeah. 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 Is there anything? I mean, there was nothing like that that existed back then except through your own writing.
4: Right. Yeah. So he
1: didn't have any other way of expressing himself besides touring uh Rhode Island and and uh well, he and the, writing his, his, his tales. Yeah, he toured the whole United States. Lovecraft was a good a good traveler. Was he? Because that's not what I I mean, again, you would know more about this than I do, but I, I just seem to get the feeling that he's more of a stay at home person. I know he spent some time in New York when he was married.
4: Yeah, he was uh, married for and lived in New York City for a couple of years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and couldn't stand it. Yeah, yeah, it was horrible. Um, but but he had he had this great correspondence, and so uh, he had all these friends all over the country, and he would occasionally go visit them. Mm-hmm. There's a great story of a uh, one guy. His name is uh, Robert Barlow, mm-hmm. and Lovecraft is is has this correspondence with him for three years. Yeah, and they become really good friends, and they talk about collaborating on some works together, and Bar and Lovecraft is helping Barlow with his writing, and Barlow says, you know, you should come down. And spend some time with me and my family. This is like in South Carolina or something. Florida, like that. Florida. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And so Lovecraft goes down to Florida and meets Barlow, who turns out to be 16 <laughs> years old, uh, and and you know he's been corresponding with this guy since he was 13. <laughs> Didn't know that Lovecraft is in his in his 40s at this point And has no idea. But he ends up spending six weeks with Barlow and his mom and dad down in Florida, uh, and they just have a you know. Big old fun time today. That would be so weird. Oh, it'd be so horrible. I'm sure it was probably weird back then too. But yeah, I think it was pretty weird. But but Lovecraft was kind of a weird guy, you know. And so he was, you know, he was very nerdy and very introverted mm-hmm. uh, in real life. It was this great correspondence with people, and uh, I well, Barlow ended up becoming Lovecraft's official literary executor, right? Actually. And yeah. is that where part of the problem comes into as as far as the who has
1: the rights to any of these any of these works? I know that there's the um, what is it, Lovecraft Press or whatever it is, the uh, Arkham House. Arkham House, yeah. Um, that wants to try to lay claim to
4: all the copyrights to everything, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Uh, you know, I yeah, I can't even I can't even begin to get into that. I mean, so so Barlow's the literary executor, but August Derleth creates Arkham House and and begins to publish this stuff, and and uh, there's this conflict between uh, Barlow and Derleth's crowd and. Arlo ends up committing suicide, Mm. uh, and just just actually the story gets kind of nasty and ugly. Derleth writes uh, a bunch of Lovecraft-ish pieces and he, uh, finds some scraps of stories and finishes them, finishes them up himself. Mm -hmm. Derleth is, is not, he's no H.P. Lovecraft by a long shot. Um, and he's responsible for a lot of the confusion about the Cthulhu mythos, even because he's
1: embellishing a lot of stuff and just adding things in and throwing things in and taking things out.
4: Yeah, and he, well, he, in, okay, for Lovecraft, there's the cosmos, which mm-hmm. is just horrible, and and is not really interested in humanity at all. Occasionally, humanity is in the way and gets stomped on ants. Yeah, Durlith imagines the cosmos as being inhabited by some good guys and some bad guys, uh, and it's. This great conflict uh, between the good, the good, bad, or the good guys and the bad guys for Durlith, yeah. and so he recasts everything as heroes and villains, and the elder gods and the great old ones, and mm-hmm. it becomes kind of a mess. And it's not until years later that people sort of sort the Durlith garbage out from the Lovecraft.
1: Style. So, but Lovecraft does talk about elder gods and the great old ones, right? Mm-hmm. Or is that yeah. added in? No, that's, okay, that's a but thing. but Durlith is sitting there saying, "Well, Yog shagath is." a bad guy or a good guy and this other guy is a good guy and they have to battle. And unfortunately it happens, Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, in, in Massachusetts or, right. well,
4: or where or they, they sort of battle over the fate of humanity kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, this totally, that just completely goes against Lovecraft's basic philosophy. And, but that's, has that all been sorted out or do you think there's still a lot of confusion? I think it's mostly sorted out. I mean, it, it matters. There's some really great Lovecraft scholarship. Uh, most notably SD Joshi has done a lot to, uh, make Lovecraft an object of very serious study. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and he's put together, uh, collections of corrected works. So the good printings of Lovecraft. And I think, uh, I think these days, anybody who's really serious about Lovecraft, uh, can get a good collection of Lovecraft and, and you get a good sense of what's real. What are are we
1: supposed to be looking for then?
4: I mean, if we're, if
1: somebody's like, I want to go out and buy the complete Works of of Lovecraft, which you can get. Yeah, Are, is there something that they want to be looking for? I mean, is the Arkham House stuff what they should be using?
4: Or I would, I would get uh, avoid anything that has August Derleth's name on it. Okay, uh, I mean, because he's the Derleth is this great hero and villain at the same time. Derleth brings Lovecraft. This he's the first guy to bring Lovecraft out of the pulps. Mm-hmm. If Derleth had done nothing, no one would have heard of Lovecraft because he would have never been reprinted. And, and is that in? So
1: is that because as we look at the pulps, you know, they have their time and then that's it. And then, you know, in the fifties and sixties, people kind of move away from the pulp fiction type stories. Um, And then by the seventies, Lovecraft and others would have been completely forgotten had it not been for people going in and collecting this stuff. I mean, is that essentially what would have happened, do you think?
4: Well, I think Lovecraft just really wasn't getting the attention. I mean, there wasn't – he wasn't this big superstar when he was alive. Mm -hmm. He was just some dude who was writing some stories. Okay, for example, Lovecraft publishes a lot of stories in Weird Tales. Right. But in his lifetime, there is no issue of Weird Tales that has a Lovecraft story as the cover art. Hmm. Um so and that that's people, kind too many of people would pass out at the newsstand. That's what it was yes. yes the <laughs> the un, somebody somebody would die trying to mix up paint <laughs> that was no color ever seen before on the planet. The color yeah. out of space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that isn't
1: interesting. I mean, you because I mean you can go and see um Conan on the cover, you see Doc Savage, the Shadow, all in their own covers of of magazines, but Weird Tales is monsters zombie yeah it
4: would have been good for the cover it's just yeah yeah. nobody
1: ever really cared enough do we know when or maybe maybe you don't know when we get the first visual depiction of of cthulhu no i don't know actually because that'd be something to interesting to just kind of go traipse back i mean we've got a description of what he what he looks like yeah but the first artist rendering i mean we see a lot of different renderings of cthulhu these days yeah sometimes cute and fuzzy
4: and yeah yeah you can't you know Get a, get a good plushie. Have you seen a, a, the, the chibi Cthulhu's? Have <laughs> yes, you seen those? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so without Durlith, we wouldn't have known that um, – we wouldn't have known about the great old ones. We probably wouldn't have known this idea of Arkham or anything like that. Right. Uh, that existed. Right. Is that something – I mean that has to happen as somebody who, who studies literature. has to happen all of the time where well, things they, just fall out of – popularity or – I I mean, I I think we could probably look at a a TV series like Twilight Zone if it wasn't for sci-fi channel constantly rebroadcasting marathons. Twilight Zone probably would have slipped out of regular knowledge about 15 years ago. Maybe. Well, like Night Gallery did. Yeah, Night Gallery. Yeah, Yeah, because Night Gallery kind (laughs) of (laughs) sucks. But does Lovecraft stories – do they suck? I mean, is it only because people have this world building experience that it's become popular or, you know, you'd mentioned that some of his stories are really terrible and I would agree some of them really are. Yeah. But would, I mean, would he still be as popular today if he had not
4: allowed people to use that and build upon it? Probably not. I mean, if you want to talk about the thing that makes Lovecraft popular, Mm -hmm. I think Lovecraft also owes a great deal of his popularity to Sandy Peterson for creating the call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Okay. You know, and that, and that brings a whole new nerd culture to Mm -hmm. Lovecraft. That's Mm -hmm. how I've learned about Lovecraft. Oh, really? Yeah. I I vividly remember being in high school. This would have been somebody will look this up. 84, 83 or 82. And I had twilight zone magazine, a subscription. Oh yeah. And in one October, there was a Gon Wilson cover and the, the, the blurb on the cover was dicing with Cthulhu. And it's, you know, it's the, Big Cthulhu and some dice falling out of a dice cup. Yeah, and uh, it was a a big piece about Sandy Peterson's new Call of Cthulhu role playing game, and a bunch of stuff about Lovecraft. And I read this and thought, oh my gosh, this is this is so awesome! I've got to find this author. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was my my foray into this. And I think a lot of a lot of people of, of our generation found Lovecraft through Call of Cthulhu. At least the gamers did. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. And not, I mean, I was listening to a really great uh, interview with uh, Denny O'Neill, who talked about how he got into, um, you know, the sci-fi side from reading pulps when he was a kid, probably around the same time in the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he went off to war and kind of had forgotten about all that stuff until he got into comics. Um, And I wonder just how many people can tie their creations to, you know, pulp stuff that have just kind of been pushed into the back of people's brains and forgotten about.
4: Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a big thing. I mean... I mean, Well, George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can go back and look at, the, it's not Pulps, but the old right. serials. Right? right. Oh, yeah. And to Flash yeah. Gordon yeah, and yeah. everything. Yeah. I mean, there's even, I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, I recently saw a thing about the some serial from the 30s or 40s where the main villain looks remarkably oh, right. like Darth Vader. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you know that that little piece was back in Lucas's brain somewhere. What uh, what is that
1: called when where we forget that we've been influenced by something? Is, is there I a- forget? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, I had no to that's do that. okay.
0: That's all
1: right. That's okay. <laughs> I have no idea. I guess the big and maybe again you maybe have studied this or maybe not, but Lovecraft is a huge racist. Oh, he's a total racist. I yes. mean, I mean just. Man, I've met some racists in my life, but he makes them seem like uh, pretty nice people.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of appalling,
1: actually. Yeah. I mean, is that from his upbringing? Is that from his – I mean, we mentioned that he went to move uh, – lived in New York for a while. Yeah. He was married. Now, I don't know what their marital relationship was, uh, you know, how well that went. But he eventually moved back because he couldn't stand, in
4: his words, all of the immigrants that yeah. were there. Yeah, that's, that's- – apparently the big thing. There are too many, too many swarthy people in New York. There's a a story he wrote, uh, the horror at Red Hook, Mm -hmm. which is about the Red Hook neighborhood in New York and, Mm -hmm. and about all those nasty swarthy people that live there. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Go ahead. Well, there's this, you know, there's a version that says, well, Lovecraft is a racist, but everybody in the first part of the 20th century, he was a racist while well, the white people were right, racists, right? right? Um, but, I mean, he was against, like, uh, Irish. He was against Italians. He was
1: against, you know, he was against, like, everybody that was not white American pro- Protestants.
4: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's the Anglo-Saxons and there's everybody else. Right. And that's – I mean, and he writes about the wonders of Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes – well, okay, his wife Sonia was Jewish. Right. But you know, they're they're nonfiction. He writes a lot of nonfiction pieces, little just reviews and stuff. And at one point I remember there was a piece, I don't know, about somebody who'd written something that he thought was really good. And he says, uh, oh, well, so and so is is of the race that brought us Mendelssohn. And for a Semite, he's a pretty good guy. You know, <laughs> it's just a lot of anti Semitic weirdness. Um, even though he, he marries a woman who's Jewish and, right. and apparently, I mean, deeply truly loved her. Though perhaps not in a carnal fashion, yeah, yeah, but okay, but th- that's the thing, I mean, you know. Yeah, a lot of people were racist, mm-hmm. but for Lovecraft, the racism really does become a part of the stories. It's not like, well, it's not okay. It's not like you got some sprinkles on your cupcake, you right. know. It's not like it's not like there are some dabs of racism that are dropped on top of Lovecraft mm-hmm. stories. It's part of the thing. Like if you read the Call of Cthulhu for example it's about this global conspiracy there mm-hmm. there's there people who worship Cthulhu the Cthulhu cult and those people are all over the planet but conspicuously those people are all of non-Anglo-Saxon descent mm-hmm. non-Europeans mm-hmm. so there are Eskimos who are working for the Cthulhu cult and there are uh, sailors from India who are working for the Cthulhu cult. And there's basically – if there are Hawaiians who are mm-hmm. working for the – everybody is part of the Cthulhu cult except for the Europeans. And Lovecraft even goes to so far as to say everybody was part of the Cthulhu cult except for the European witch cult. Like he actually makes a point of going, well, except for the European witch cult, which is Europeans, so right. they're not into Cthulhu. And it, it, it becomes this – there in us versus them story mm-hmm. uh you know there's the good guys are a norwegian sailor uh, uh an american professor of linguistics um there's a um a f- guy of french uh, heritage uh, new orleans police mm-hmm. officer mm-hmm. you know it's like all the all the european types are the good guys and all the non european types are out trying to kill those guys yeah, yeah 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 so i mean as an editor of a
1: magazine why are you not suggesting, eh, let's just uh, strike this word
4: swarthy? Well, because it's totally not a thing. I mean, it's also – remember, this is the era that brings us uh, Fu Manchu mm-hmm. as the great villain. Mm-hmm. So there is – there is uh it's just not that much thought put into it. I mean, or are probably, you talking about general acceptance? Yeah, it's perfectly acceptable. Nobody looks at that and cringes. Well, I mean, okay, none of the white people looked at that and cringed, <laughs> right? Um but we do today. I guess what I'm suggesting, though, is is that I mean it really is deeply ingrained in Lovecraft's fiction, mm-hmm. uh, and that continues to echo uh, in some weird kind of ways. Like, um, take for example uh, King Kong mm-hmm. in 1933, mm-hmm. and uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong in 2005. Now you would think, right, that the 1933 version being from 1933 would be all horribly racist. Mm-hmm. And in its, its way, it is. I mean, there are all those people that live on skull Island, right? And they're all African and, or some kind of African derivation, having left Africa and going right. to skull Island somehow. Right. They're all black people. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, they all seem sort of hopelessly ignorant, but they're also people mm-hmm. like in that movie. We sympathize with those characters. There's a cool scene where um, this baby gets dropped and and Kong is stomping through the village. Mm -hmm. And you know he's just going to stomp on that baby. And this mother jumps out from the crowd. She grabs her child and she pulls him to safety. And as an audience, we're supposed to be sympathizing with her and that baby. We want the baby to live, right? Right. Uh, Now, compare that to Peter Jackson's 2005 version of King Kong, which is – I think pretty heavily influenced by Lovecraft at this point. Okay, like nobody, you know, nobody was reading Lovecraft in reference to King Kong, but, right. but Jackson brings in a lot of Lovecraft elements there. Mm-hmm. And in that one, think about how the natives are portrayed in that one. Uh, they're kind of Kong cultists, like the like the original movie, but, mm-hmm. but they're also just crazy. I mean, they're just they're just around the bend, loopy, right. insane. The first native you see is this little girl. And she's standing in the the like the middle of this village. They think it's deserted, but then suddenly this little girl appears and uh, she does this thing with her hand and she kind of bends her wrist and there's this weird creaky popping sound. It's mm-hmm. like she's some kind of zombie. Yeah. And all the natives, they're totally subhuman. Mm-hmm. I mean their eyes are rolling back in their mm-hmm. head, and they have this bizarre, this not even a dance they do. They kind of have like sort of weird conniptions. Hmm. Um Those people are not sympathetic in the least. They're the most horrible thing in the movie. Right. uh, Because they they look so much like people, but they don't behave like people at all. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's this Lovecraft flavor to that movie. um, And that's just part of Lovecraft's business. So here's the problem, though, that I think people – I don't know
1: how many people think this way, but, oh, if you like Lovecraft, you must be a racist, too. How do we separate – how do we separate the artist from the work or can we even do that with Lovecraft because the two are so integrated with one another? And does that make us – does that make us quote unquote wrong or bad because we enjoy
4: reading these stories? Uh, Maybe. I don't – Okay. Well, for one thing, I mean Lovecraft was a cool guy and I'm interested in him. Mm -hmm. But – but yeah, it's really easy to separate the artist from the work because I don't need to know anything about Lovecraft to enjoy his works. Like you could throw, or any other artist. Like I don't, I don't need to read a biography of an artist to get mm-hmm. a work, or at least to make some sense out of it for myself.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I think if you were ignorant about the racial politics of Lovecraft stories, uh, I think it would be entirely possible to internalize some of this and think, you know, if you begin to think, yeah, those Eskimos, you know, the Eskimos, I mean, that's, that's a bizarre way to think. Um, but you know, yeah, I think a person needs to be a little aware that there's some nasty business going. It's not, it's not cute, fluffy stuff. I mean, it's, It's some really, really, really horrible stuff in there.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, does that then take away from the enjoyment that one gets from? I mean, I find it hard now to read Lovecraft stuff knowing now what I've looked at, how his racist background, you know, in in some of his letters, how he refers to um, uh, (laughs) the swarthy people in in his letters where he's just basically dropping the N-bomb. Yeah. Um, and um, and I, I can't look at some of the, his works now without thinking about, is this wrong to read this? Is this the equivalent of owning a copy of Mein Kampf and having it on the shelf? You know, what, you know, I mean, I, Lovecraft isn't evil, uh, but, no,
5: but he's it's, also
4: it's, really messed up. It's, yeah, it's really gross. I, I was playing a game of Eldritch Horror mm-hmm. just a few nights ago with a buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. and And, you know, we're – We're, you know, older guy. I mean, you know, I'm in my 40s. He was in his 50s. Right. And we, uh, something happened in the game where, uh, we were in Rome and something horrible happened and somebody was annoying somebody else. And he was just sort of joking, like, you know, how would Lovecraft characterize that? You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, that would be like full of all sorts of vitrolic racism. Right, right, right. Of course, in the game, it's, there's none of that is in there. Uh, and it was kind of embarrassing. We were both like, ugh. Uh, yeah. cause that's, you know, yeah, he would, he would take this into some sort of a horrible zone. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not at all happy with any of that. I mean, my kids, okay my kids have an 11 year old and a 13 year old. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, we watched the, the great film adaptation of Call of Cthulhu that came out a few years yeah, ago. yeah the, the silent film. Yeah. Treatment the, version. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, they got a big kick out of that. Um, But, you know, I did feel obliged to talk to them about, you notice how all the bad guys are not white people. And, you know, I mean, like I felt like I needed to kind of kind of have a debriefing about that with them. Like, by the way, this is a totally racist story. Don't forget that. But is that, I mean, we talk in the Star Wars class. Let's relate to the Star
1: Wars class where we talk about Star Wars as George Lucas. He only wrote the first movie. I mean, he's got other people writing – the other movies and 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 adapting those and and putting their own spin on it, but we think of Star Wars as George Lucas, yeah, and we think of Cthulhu as Lovecraft, but we may not think of maybe we do, maybe we do think of Harry Potter as um um I forgot her name um J.K. Rowling, you know, we had just attribute those things, and so do we then attribute more of their personality into the work then maybe what we should.
4: Yeah. Well, I did a, one of the lectures that I did for the star Wars class was uh, looking at star Wars through the lens of Michel Foucault's uh, text. What is an author? Mm-hmm. where Foucault says, well, you know, there's not really an author is not a person. It's a cultural function that we attribute to a text uh, or that we attribute to a person as being like a way of coming to some sort of understanding. And one of the one of the things I landed on at the end of that was this notion of an author function, where we say George Lucas did this, and George Lucas did that, and he has this role that we have as an author. Um, that gets in conflict with our notion of of Star Wars as a myth, mm-hmm. because a myth doesn't have an author. There is no author of Hercules. That's right. just a a thing. And so we have this big conflict because we want Star Wars to be a myth. But we also wanted to have some rather large dude behind it to, right. you know, we can blame everything on. Right. right, right. Uh, and so those two, those two notions come into conflict. Uh, Lovecraft, you know, is kind of the the grandfather of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, as you said, so many people have taken this on. Uh, you know, so you know Neil Gaiman stuff. I mean, there's just so many different authors have have glommed onto this that the cthulhu mythos really does function in our culture more like a myth mm-hmm. and we you know we imagine lovecraft at the head of it as the guy who's conceived a lot of the pieces of it and maybe the basic philosophy that underlies it but but he's also really let go of it you know he he died at 47 mm-hmm. uh, in 1937 and has not been a contributing member of the Lovecraft <laughs> yes, circle for then. a
1: long time. And, and yeah. one could argue that it's grown. I mean, it's grown t- tremendously since then. So, that unlike maybe George Lucas, which is still – who's still alive and still has a very close connection to Star Wars, um, maybe there's more of this direct connection than maybe what Lovecraft is today.
4: Yeah. I mean, okay, if you think of how a myth works, like a, how a maybe an organic myth would have worked back in – Classical Greece, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody, somebody goes, oh, I've got this story about Hercules. Oh, it's a good story; everybody likes it. Right? And somebody else retells the story about Hercules. Maybe they add a bit, mm-hmm. and then they add another bit. And some people don't like one of those bits, so it gets taken out and it fades away. And no, there are only these seven labors of Hercules left out of the original forty. Maybe mm-hmm. I mean, who knows mm-hmm. how many? Right? Right. It's so only the best stuff kind of survives, and the junk gets discarded and forgotten. And that's kind of happening with the Cthulhu mythos. So the best stuff is getting attention and the worst stuff is fading away. And more I mean, and because there's so many, so much of a gigantic pile right, of Cthulhu related business.
1: Yeah, I didn't know about Randolph Carter. I know I've heard the name, but I'd not read it or learned anything about it until within the last year. Yeah, yeah. And that's stuff that we could probably chuck out.
4: Yeah. And, uh, and that's some Lovecraft stuff. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's good old L canon business. I right, think. right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, things like, uh,
1: oh, you know, um, who was it? John Carpenter did an adaptation of uh, uh At the Mountains of Madness, I believe. Is, not no, you're, Mountains thinking, of madness. you're thinking From the Mouths of Madness. From the Mouths of Madness. Yeah. yeah. That was an interesting – and you didn't think that it's a Cthulhu story. Yeah. Or a, a Lovecraft story until the very end when suddenly all the older – elder gods start appearing and chasing people down the hallway and everything. And, yeah. And it's uh, really weird to think that, yeah, there's an influence there um, that comes from, you know, 40 years ago. And and Stephen King is the same way. I mean, you don't, you don't think about that. But when you really look at some of his horror stories, and a lot of his short stories, too, there's yeah. a lot of Lovecraft inspired in there. Yeah. And added to and, you know, taken away. So, maybe that's the thing for people that have this concern is enjoy the good stuff. Yeah. Realize that Lovecraft is – a complete bastard, a complete <laughs> racist, but he did something that contributed to culture
4: uh, yeah. at the same time in in, in, a, in a positive way. I, well, you know, I mean, that's the other big thing is why why does this take off like it does? I mean, you know, why why of all the monsters in the world, why do these monsters matter to us? I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I have no you haven't clue. spent
1: nights pondering the universe and wondering. Oh why yeah, but it's it, you, the older gods are
4: you cannot grasp it. You know, it's beyond human understanding
1: you don't even have an idea of why why it's taken off is I, it because of it's because it's so vague because it is such the unknown that people like that idea of the unknown yet when you spell something out you know fiber by fiber Suddenly it's not as scary anymore. You know, you hear that thing on the doorstep and you're thinking, good Lord, what is that? Or, you know, uh, what is it? Who did uh, Rats in the Walls? That's a, uh, uh, well, that's a Lovecraft story. That's a Lovecraft yeah, story, yeah. but inspired more like from Poe. Um, but, you know. A, a guy who is are,
4: not a total
1: racist, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you you know, you hear these things scurrying in the walls. Yeah. You know, you lay a bed at night. Yeah. And then you know you have to burn the house down. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't know what it is. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's scary, but when you realize, oh, just a squirrel, and you're like, oh, okay, well, it's just a squirrel, or it's just a bird making an ass. No, that's no, not a big deal. It's not scary. But you know, you hear that, and you're like, boo, boo, yeah. uh, burn the
4: house down. Yeah. No, get out, get out. It's coming to get us.
1: <laughs> I mean, isn't isn't is that is that thats that why it's
4: it's I mean, maybe it's a maybe it's some sort of deep primal thing. I mean, I guess you know, to, if you go back to my dissertation, one of the things I'm I'm saying that makes Lovecraft fascinating to people is that he does tap into this notion of the sublime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other other versions of horror, um, there's a monster and we dominate it and control it. Think of Dracula, for mm-hmm. example, right? And so, uh, you know, in the end of the story, Dracula is put down and the world is restored and everything is wonderful because human beings totally dominate and control the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a Lovecraft story, it's exactly the opposite of that. That's never the resolution. Or think of think of the resolution of, of war in the worlds where, right. you know, Humans don't really do anything. The the Martians, you know, just caught a cold, yeah. a really bad cold. Yeah, uh, but but you know, human badassery wins the day, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Lovecraft, it just never ever plays that way ever. You know, if you survive, well, congratulations on your survival. Now you're committed to an insane asylum for the rest of your natural life, yeah. right? I mean, there's there's nothing nice there but it's always always connected to this sense of the sublime this thing that is so much greater than us uh in 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 awesome in its in you know, a very horrible uh and disturbing way and maybe lovecraft has grabbed a hold of a notion there you know later versions of the cthulhu mythos don't play that game so much though you know mm-hmm. it's it's mostly about you know beating and stomping these things into submission Right. Some right,
0: way.
1: yeah so then you said in in your dissertation that you're trying to tie Gibson into this as well and and other authors. Yeah, Gibson, Arthur C. Clarke. How, how does Clarke and well I can see Clarke because we don't ever understand what We don't ever understand what the movie 2001 is about. Well, yes. I mean, I don't know. We could go into a long discussion <laughs> about the uh the nano uh you know the nano what is it called? The self-replicating technologies that get shot out into space and then they land on a place like the moon and they just yeah. wait for society to come up to their level. And yeah. I, I made this uh, comment that freaked a lot of people out you know, years ago how the monolith in 2001, every time people have contact with it, there's this huge jump in, in evolution because supposedly the monolith is there sharing all of this information yeah. with people. Yeah. And yet I can reach into my pocket and I can pull out this little black device that has the same shape and size yeah. as the monolith and it's also delivering all this information to us at the same time and it kind of freaks people out yeah. when i when i make that sadly i have not evolved you you, you don't have one of those well, but <laughs> no any, i mean any, i just have no, i have one i just any, haven't evolved any any mobilize, Oh, i'm yeah. <laughs> So what is gibson then i mean i mean we understand you know clark is this this unknown again yeah but what is what is gibson because his seems to be more technology and technology going crazy or you know um
4: Getting to this next level than where we're at, but it's still very defined, I think. Well, if you look at the original Cyberspace Trilogy and, right. and past Neuromancer, the, the Gibson's weirdness actually doesn't kick in until the very end of Neuromancer. Um, at, at some point, um, because they get they get the winter mute, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, mm-hmm. they get the AIs together and, right. and it becomes this sort of super AI. Mm. And then the super AI starts scanning space. And it makes contact with some entity out there. And that entity and the super AI Wintermute thing uh, begin some sort of relationship. And that's at the very end of Neuromancer. And okay. then in the next book, uh, the artificial intelligence that was Wintermute has has fractured and broken up into these various different entities. Mm-hmm. And they exist like ghosts in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. But that is specifically, that, if, that fracturing specifically related to that computer entity encountering this strange mm-hmm. unknown unknowable okay. and it couldn't from handle it either and yeah, so instead right. of passing yeah. out
1: and rebooting it just shattered
4: yeah, as yeah. As and much. so then that becomes this whole and so there's this whole other huge business in the last two books all about the sublime um, and yeah and so the, it's not part of Neuromancer really I mean it's just that very last little moment in Neuromancer mm-hmm. but then it colors the last two books of the trilogy completely I see so.
1: How was this received when you when you wrote this and tied these together? Were there a lot of
4: dissenters? Oh, both people enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so then, I mean, would you consider that this is generally accepted uh, notion of? No, no. I would consider this a dusty book on a shelf somewhere at the University of Oklahoma that no one reads. I mean – oh, yeah. Actually, somebody did actually write a really good article explaining why I was totally wrong. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've – I applied a very specific uh, reading of Kant. Mm. There's sort of two schools for Kant. And mm-hmm. if you don't, if you go with the one school, it makes no sense whatsoever. If you go with the other school, oh yes, this makes perfect sense. I see. And so somebody wrote a really interesting sort of reply that was from like, from the other perspective, yeah, from the other perspective. It's like, yes, of course you would think I was totally wrong because you're from the other school. So, yeah. Well, I think in
1: that, I mean, understanding that it's this idea of the sublime, sublime that makes this mythos continue and i don't know if if the cyberpunk is still still a thing or not it's gone yeah is it gone completely
4: do you think gone. yeah i don't know is anybody still doing that
1: not that i know of i mean yeah. unless you're talking about the what's that board game it's like dungeons and dragons but it's all set with cyberpunk gear
4: and shadow run shadow run oh and netrunners really possible, yeah. really popular right now yeah so. so i guess it's kind of a thing it's still there but maybe in the background yeah. maybe it'll have
1: a resurgence yeah I guess that, I, I mean, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it's because of the, this, I mean, I always know this fear of the unknown, but when you can't describe it, it makes yeah. it even more horrifying.
4: Yeah. When you can't F it, it's a real problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anything else that we we want to talk about? Uh, is there a big point that you wanted to make sure that we got across? And No. I just wanted to geek out a little bit about Lovecraft and I knew that you, yeah, you this had thing, done man. this thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we're going to have to talk about Cthulhu some more. Fact. Yeah. I think maybe we want to we ought to try to get you on one of our other shows, to where we can play Cthulhu. Would you have you not done that? No, I haven't, no. I've not played the. Um, I haven't played. I, I've played Elder Sign on the iPad, but that's kind of you playing oh, multiple no, characters, yeah, yeah, which is fun, but it's terribly hard. Yeah. But I understand the board game game is also incredibly hard to. It's really abstract. Win. I, I mean, yeah.
4: I've played it a few times, and I just don't. I don't get the feeling that I'm doing anything, playing a really elaborate game of Yahtzee. Right, right, right. Yeah. But the cool thing is, I mean, there's multiple
1: versions of the game, right? I mean, you've got the one that's set in the museum, then you've got the one that's set in more like the greater city and then yeah, well, expands outward from there. Total, those are totally different games, though.
4: I know. Um, yeah. Like Arkham Horror and, right. and Elder Horror. Right, yeah. right. Eldritch Horror is the new one, and it it rocks. It's a, is it? Yeah. Is it hard to play, though? No, no, no. It's dead easy. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to play that. That'd be awesome. I, I think it would be. I think you're talking about Munchkin Cthulhu. Well, that too. That's the one I was thinking of because that one's a whole lot
1: of fun, especially when you get all your little cult members together and you can do things with them and mix them with other decks. I mean, Woo. people who listen to Munchkin Land know know that my love of, of that game comes only from the Munchkin Cthulhu set um, and not much else. Even the even the Super, super Munchkin. Wow, uh, I don't think so, but so here's the reason why people are like, well, we've sat through this and this is a really fascinating interview, Stephen, but how does this tie, tie into comic books and pop culture? Well, obviously, hopefully we've made this connection to pop culture. Yeah. Which, um, you know, love crafting the Cthulhu mythos is pop culture. I mean, that's, I mean, go to a convention and look at all the little chibi Cthulhus, look at all the people that have, you know, Christmas trees with tentacles coming out of them and, and, uh, and other things. Um, Here's a here's a tie to comic books that I haven't nailed down completely, but I find it fascinating. So, Denny O'Neill is credited with coming up with the idea of Arkham Hospital uh, in um, in the pages of Batman. Yeah. Uh, he wrote me an email to clarify that you know Arkham Asylum, as the name has has been changed to, and which most people know of, actually is another uh, writer who did that. And I don't have the email open here, so I can't uh, pull it up. But um, When Denny O'Neill was working for DC Comics, his editor was Julius Schwartz. And everybody knows Julius Schwartz if you're a comic book fan. What I didn't know was that Julius Schwartz was was a representative, a literary agent for Lovecraft. Hmm. So if we know that Lovecraft sets all of his stuff in Arkham. Yeah. And we know that we have a place called Arkham Asylum or Arkham Hospital. And we look at that in-between vector point. How much of an influence then did Julia Schwartz have in bringing more of Lovecraft stuff into the DC universe than than what we may be aware of? Yeah, and I find that very fascinating. That we can go right from Lovecraft to Schwartz to O'Neill and and Arkham uh, uh, Asylum, uh, Arkham Hospital in in that in that way, and I find that very very fascinating.
4: Yeah. I imagine, I imagine the the word Arkham in Arkham Asylum is a jumping in point for a yes. lot of people,
1: and and that's where I got kind of started making this connection because in this interview that Denny O'Neil had done with Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman, which it's like a three part interview, but it's really fascinating for people to listen to that he had read pulps when he was young, and so it makes sense that you know even if he didn't want, even if anybody wanted to disclaim any connection or influence that Schwartz would have had on the encouraging the naming of the place, um, I think Arkham has become one of those. Phrases that instantly um, p- brings into this notion of craziness or madness. Yeah. And if you think about the city of Arkham and all the crazy, mad things that happen in the city of Arkham, and all the crazy, mad things that ha- happen in Arkham Asylum, um, I think that that's a that's a fascinating kind of comparison. Yeah. But I wonder though if
4: Arkham has become more
1: Batman than Lovecraft.
4: Maybe. I mean, certainly Batman is way more popular. It's than certainly more popular. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, there, you know, I mean, the whole Cthulhu mythos is kind of a an esoteric. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still is, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you can, yeah, you'll find your people at your cons, you know. And I have my Cthulhu T-shirts that I right, wear around right. town, but I also get a lot of weird looks, and they're very, now it's you know, in Western Kansas. Yeah, right. Well, there, yeah, there <laughs> is that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's definitely a thing. But you know, so so Lovecraft, you know, and the influence of the Cthulhu mythos can be. Sometimes really, really subtle. Maybe it's just like a name drop here mm-hmm. and there, you know.
1: Have you ever read uh, the Batman story? It's an Elseworlds title called The Doom That Came to Gotham. No, although You've it's got, suddenly intriguing. You have to read it. Oh, We've nice. reviewed it on the podcast before, but it is a Cthulhu story where basically the ship that came back from at the Mountains of Madness rolls into Gotham Harbor in this is like the 1920s 1930s and uh, the Batman of that time period has to go and investigate and it gets kind of creepy. I mean, it's got the whole, uh you know, the spores that, that yeah. transform and, and poor, uh, Mr. Freeze is, is the one that's trying to keep everything going and he's infected and it's, it's really kind of cool.
4: Oh, that does sound really cool. Yeah. It's, it's, wow. you
1: can go pick it up. It's graphic, uh, one shot. It's just a one shot. It's not that big of a deal, yeah. but, uh, I hear
4: Comixology is pretty good.
1: It is a good place to go and get those. If only they would sponsor <laughs> this show. Um, but, uh, Mike Mignola, who people know from Hellboy. Um, did the also, art on that and also and wrote a lot it, of uh, and again a lot of yeah. the Lovecraft stuff influenced there too I mean so not only in in pure prose form but comic books movies TV shows uh, yeah. all have inspirations from Lovecraft and I think this is maybe that makes me feel a little bit more makes me feel a lot better now knowing that this has become more of a cultural uh, property than a individual property yeah
4: and and that cultural thing has jettisoned the re- the, the racism I think
1: and that's good. Yes,
4: absolutely. <laughs> <guess so>.
5: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Well, I said I was going to only keep you for a little while because you've got some other things to do. You've got to go back and do your assistant deaning type stuff. I, I must dean all over campus, Dean all over campus, please. <laughs> uh, Dr. Well, thanks for coming in. And uh, again, listeners, um, we're going to try to get uh, Dr. Will and some other people on the show in and out uh, to talk about different things. And hopefully you've enjoyed this. I, I know I like talking about it, even if it's kind of brushing the surface. There's the comment section. Um, we want to hear from you. Let us know if you like this discussion, if you want more of these kinds of things in the future, because we can certainly bring in more uh, experts. I know uh, Dr. Peter Coogan has been uh, interested in coming back on the show. and We definitely want to get him back on the show. And um, and uh, and if you listen to Critical Hit. Occasionally we'll do these shout outs to Dr. Will that's this guy, yeah, because uh I didn't know Rob and Brian and Alex maybe. All had classes with you.
4: No, no, I just knew those guys oh, okay. from
1: kicking around campus. From, okay, because that's they're always like, "Oh, Doctor Brent, Doctor Will, this, Doctor Will that." I'm like, "Who's this Doctor Will guy that you guys are always talking about?" Yeah, yeah. So uh, now listeners know who you are, and um, more people know who you, you are. So. Do you,
4: do you, want, do you have time for my critical hit story? Yeah, go ahead. Do You want to hear this? Because, yeah, yeah. Because go ahead. I, I was, We've got I, time. Was, I was getting we can do whatever. Ready. We can do whatever we want. Okay, oh, yeah, it was my getting- show.
5: Awesome! Wow,
4: <laughs> I was getting ready to because uh, another gig I have was uh, I used to do freelance editing for Wizard of the Coast. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was gonna uh, getting gearing up to work on a D and um, book, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, you know, I we had some friends over. We played a lot of D D. We had a campaign going for about a year, but I really wanted to get back into it. So I thought I'll listen to some D D podcast. Right. And so I go through iTunes and I find, oh, here's one that's pretty well ranked, and I'll, I'll get this, and so I start listening to it. And, of course, it's this guy, Steven, and this fellow, Rodrigo. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought to myself, that's interesting. This guy, Rodrigo, has exactly the same accent as Rodrigo, who regularly kicks my butt at magic tournaments. Yeah, yeah. Rodrigo must be a really, really popular name in Mexico, and I didn't know it. And so I'm listening and listening and listening and going, oh, this is really fascinating. And then uh, this guy Rob comes in, and Rob and Brian, I thought, well, that's interesting because Rob sounds a lot like the other guy, Rob, who also (laughs) kicks my butt at magic. And then at some point in early episodes, somebody says – you know, oh, yeah, I got this book at Hastings and Hayes, and I, I I was painting my house at the time, and I very nearly fell off the ladder. It's like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's the I
1: know these guys. Yeah, so, you know, Dr. Will, Brad is not just, you know, just not pure academic. He, he's a big nerd. I mean, bigger nerd than maybe I am, too, because – you want to tell your your your, G, your is it G continuity uh, story?
4: No, oh, it's not G continuity. <laughs> I think you should. I have no G continuity. No, it's not G no, continuity. I have, I have a lot of I have a lot of S continuity. S continuity yeah, Star C Wars continuity. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to edit uh, for the Star Wars Saga Edition role playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people play that. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very. It was. Pretty oh, in fact, I know people play it because when you told your story at Planet Comic Con. Yeah, I saw people in the audience going, "Oh, I know that." Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Go yeah.
4: ahead and go ahead and. Oh, uh, this was I probably okay. I'll tell this story. So, uh, so we were editing a book, and it was a mm-hmm. it was a really cool book. One of the last books that we did in that series, and there was a planet. And uh, for whatever reason, the guy who was running the the lead editor didn't like that name, and mm-hmm. he said, "Okay, we're going to rename the planet." And he gave us this other name to use. It was two of us who were doing the copy technical edit for this, and so we make. Global substitution. We change the one name, change it to this other name, and we go on. We get a couple of weeks into the project, and the other editor sends this frantic email: "Oh no, the new name is only one letter away from this other planet in the Star Wars galaxy, which wouldn't have been so bad except that we reference the other planet also oh, in this yeah, book." Yeah. And so, so the guy who was doing the, the sort of lead on the on the project, Rodney Thompson, sends out this email and says, "Okay, give us another." Another name immediately. And so it was, I had this window. I knew I had only a few minutes to figure <laughs> this out. And so I, I came up with a name for the planet that's an anagram of my two sons' names, Ryan and Ian. Mm-hmm. And so now the planet is named Nereon forever um, because there you go. And you didn't know if that was going to make it in or not if, or yeah, if somebody I,
1: would go, hey, wait a minute now, yeah, this, this
4: guy. Yeah, this was in like October when we did this book. And everything has to be vetted through, through Leland Chi and all right, the, right. the people at Lucasfilm. And the book wasn't slated to come out, I think, until January. And so I didn't mention it to anyone. It was super secret. I didn't mention it to my sons. I think I mentioned it to my wife because I needed someone to agonize over this <laughs> with me. And so I was, it was sort of, you know, oh, I had my fingers crossed. I hope it sticks. I hope it sticks. You know, but they could change anything. Right. You know, they don't really even need a reason. Uh, and uh, so I began to uh, uh, Google the word Nerion because mm-hmm. I got my copies, my comp copies of the book. On the day of release, but I knew there were some advanced review copies going around. And so about a week before release, Google gets an extra hit and somebody mentions, Oh, there's this planet, Nereon. I was like, Yay! So I knew <laughs> I knew before the book was released that the stuff was in there. So yeah, it was my one of my great achievements in life. That, you know, <laughs> forget the whole doctor thing. And yeah, it's just I have a planet in the Star Wars galaxy that I got to name after my kids.
1: So How cool. does one become a writer for Wizards of the Coast or for other gaming companies?
4: Ah, uh, you know, is there, a, is there a secret? Is there a? Yeah, know people. You got to know people. Yeah, you got to know people. I I know one person, one of our students here at, at Fort Hayes State mm-hmm. University, uh, got we a mentioned job. Mentioned him on our show. A couple yeah, Logan times. Bonner yeah, got Logan. a job mm-hmm. uh, straight out of college with with Wizards of the Coast, uh, and as far as I know he might be the only person that they ever hired uh, to work on D and D straight out of college. I wow. mean, it was, it was remarkable then. Yeah. Uh, but he's a super talented guy. Um, so yeah, I think it helps to know people. Coincidentally, I of course knew him when I got my gig with wizards of the coast. Oh, so yeah, It okay. does help to know, it people. does help to know people. Yeah. All right.
1: I'll be having to send an email to Mr. Logan.
4: <laughs> well, he's not with them anymore. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe as a freelancer. Though. There you go. All right, Dr. Will,
1: thank you so much. And listeners, thank you. For uh, downloading, listening, contributing, sharing, using the comments section. Um, we'll be back next week with more on Major Spoilers because we know that you love comics and we do too, and we will talk with you soon. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Major Spoilers.com. Visit Major Spoilers at Majorspoilers.com, and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers Forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash Majorspoilers.
6: the x-ray vision of a Superman, I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the colors of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds, well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store got here, they kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. think about a better way, if I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take the comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need mean to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such a chance? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler start raving rich like a man of iron. might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the heart cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fine being in the Middle East. With a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler wow what a major spoiler major
2: spoilers is copyright 2014.